Every little thing you think that you need. Every little thing you think that you need. Every little thing that's just feeding your greed. Oh, I bet that you'd be fine without it. Hello, simpletons. You're listening to the Minimalist Private Podcast, where we discuss what it means to live a meaningful life with less. My name is Joshua Fields Milburn. Ryan Nicodemus is on vacation this week. Don't worry, he'll be back next week. But in the meantime, we've got Malabama here. Hi, everybody. And of course, TK Coleman. What it is. Oh, the rest of our team is here in the studio as well. Big thanks to our Patreon supporters. Your support keeps our podcast and our YouTube channel 100% average. Advertisement free because advertisements suck. Before we get to our callers, we'll get there in a moment. So if you have a question or comment for our show, give us a call 406-219-7839 or email a voice memo to podcast at theminimalists.com. Let us know that you're a private podcast, Patreon subscriber, so we can prioritize your message. But first, we have a question from Erica on Patreon. What does minimalism have to do with normal, everyday subjects like friendships, having pets, and enjoying entertainment? So, TK, we both know that focusing on less creates room for more. And Erica brings up friendships. I was a friendship hoarder at one one yeah. part in time. One time in my life, I was a friendship hoarder. I wanted more friends. More is better. And yeah. I think that is sort of the, the disease of more. More stuff must be better. More square foot. It, more square footage in my home must be better. More friends must be better. More money must be better. And there's nothing wrong with any of those things. But when we're just pursuing more for the sake of more, it tends to become clutter over time. And so she mentioned a few things here friendships for some people like Ryan, who's not here today, but he is a extrovert, an extreme extrovert. And so he makes do with more friendships than me. Mm. But even then having the appropriate amount of intentional relationships is thriving for him. With me, it's having far fewer friendships, but having friendships that are really meaningful for me, but also redefining what friendship looks like. But then there are these other areas as well, having pets. We did an entire pet episode before TK came on board. We brought some experts in here and we talked about minimalist pets. We'll put a link to that episode in the show notes because the truth is that you could hoard pets. In fact, we see it on the TV show Hoarders, right? What happens is... There's, well, there are dead pets they hold on to. There's excrement all over the house because when we just want more, 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 the things begin to get in the way, including our pets and pet waste. And then she also mentioned enjoying entertainment. Now, we have this entertainment machine in our pockets now that allow, that follows us around everywhere. And it's easy to be pacified, to be entertained 24 mm. seven. When I'm constantly looking for more dopamine through my entertainment, I'm not being intentional. And after a while, if I binge watch something for four or five, 10 episodes, yep. I start to feel miserable in a way. Yeah. And so I've been thinking about this episode. I wanted to call it not minimalism because we put a call out to our Patreon supporters and also call out on social media and said, hey, we have a challenge for you. Because yeah. last week we did a whole episode about monogamy and non-monogamy. Right. And I'm going to talk to you on the private podcast about how that completely changed my mind about some things. Mm. But I also thought that minimalism definitely has something to do with relationships. Mm -hmm. However, 
there are some things that probably have nothing to do with minimalism. And so we put Mm. a call out to our patrons and said, hey, let us know if you can think of something that has absolutely nothing to do with minimalism. We're going to talk about some of those things today. I wanted to throw a few out to you, though, TK. And you tell me, does minimalism have anything to do with this? I'm going to say yes already before hearing the things, (laughs) because my understanding of minimalism is such that it has something to bring to every discussion, regardless of what it is. Mm, Okay. So tell me about this. I've gone down this rabbit hole recently of the Egyptian pyramids, and it seems that the Egyptians didn't actually build these pyramids 4,500 years ago. At least there's a lot of evidence to the contrary there. And Mm. I looked at that and I said, well, what the hell does minimalism have to do with that, TK? Mm. So let's back up a little bit, because I believe you gave earlier the defining question of minimalism, which is, How might my life be better with less? Now, what's interesting is whenever we say that, the most common question we get in response to it is, well, what about people who don't have enough as it is? And I think that question comes because there's a silent phrase that gets attached to the end of your question. And that phrase is physical goods. So when people hear, how might my life be better with less, what they hear is, how might my life be better with less physical goods? And I just like the question as it is with less, because that leaves room for other kinds of baggage. There's physical clutter, but we also carry philosophical baggage, and we also carry psychological baggage, which we bring to bear on all of our experiences, right? So I would define philosophical baggage as any self-defeating belief or any element of incongruence in your worldview. And psychological baggage, I would define that as maybe uh, an ineffective or harmful way of processing your emotions or a self-defeating pattern of behavior. Now, consider any issue in your life. Ask yourself, if that issue is less than perfect in your life, Is there an opportunity for improvement by taking a look at the philosophical assumptions you're making, taking a look at the patterns of behavior you have around it, taking a look at the way you're processing your feelings in relation to that issue and doing some unpacking, doing some simplifying? Usually every approach to problem solving involves some element of that. And so minimalism may not be, let's say, a political philosophy or a sociological theory. It may not be a comprehensive theory of pets, right? Or it may not be a philosophy of money or race, but there are mental models and strategies that are employed in the minimalistic worldview that can be applied to anything because it's impossible to experience a clutter problem without experiencing some kind of philosophical or psychological issue in relation to the things that we call clutter. So that's kind of like the groundwork. Now, what's the particular thing you want, want, want me to apply that to? Well, I'm thinking about a few things here. And so there are a few things I want to talk about throughout the episode. So we, in fact, we have a question about anti-racism that we're going to talk about on yeah. the private podcast. I'm going to take the anti-stance. You'll take the pro-racism stance and we'll uh, figure it out <laughs> together. Um, or... Oh, the pyramids. That's what we're going to get there. But but becoming an organ donor as well. We have a Mm. question about that. And I can certainly see how minimalism applies to that. The anti-racism thing. I'm not really sure. And so we'll have a conversation about that. But something like the pyramids, which for me is a bit of entertainment. I'm fascinated by it. Right. I'm fascinated by 
okay, what were the pyramids actually used for? And how could they have possibly built those? But I don't know how to see that even through a minimalist lens. I never even thought about it that way. Absolutely. So the kinds of questions you're asking about the pyramids belong to a field of philosophy known as epistemology. It's a much too fancy word for theory of knowledge. Uh, Episteme uh, is a word that means to know. And your epistemology refers to the theory you have about what it means to know something, what kind of relationship must exist between our beliefs in order for those beliefs to be justified, what it means to be rational. So anytime we criticize someone and say, well, you're being irrational or you're not being reasonable, we're making epistemic presuppositions, right? We are, we are revealing an epistemology that we have, a theory about what it means to know things. So when you're watching this documentary or you're reading this book on pyramids and you're contrasting it with things that you have been taught and you're starting to question those things, you're starting to do some epistemology. And what does that mean to do epistemology? What it means is that you're starting to unearth your assumptions, right? You're starting to unpack the beliefs that you've had about what makes a claim reliable? What constitutes an expert? When should we trust the experts and defer to them? And when should we challenge them and demand that they demonstrate what they know in an independently verifiable way? Also, what are the implications of my beliefs about pyramids? Does it even matter what I believe? Do we even need to know? Whenever we have philosophical discussions about anything important like history, religion, the pursuit of meaning, you know, uh, our place in the universe, all kinds of epistemological things come up and they kind of get in the way of us being able to think critically about these things. So for instance, something that you'll often see whenever two people are discussing something that's complex is there's almost always an observer of the conversation who feels like if something were important or true, the answer would be obvious and easy to discover. And the very fact that we need to have these difficult discussions where we have to define our terms and engage in this complicated reasoning should be taken as evidence in and of itself that this is either unimportant or unknowable. Mm. But that's an epistemic assumption that's capable of being questioned. Maybe it's true, maybe it's false. So this is an example of how a minimalistic approach can even help you get underneath the hood of the presuppositions that you're bringing in to a discussion about something like pyramids. In our last yeah. Netflix film, which you were in, you or we talked about the definition of minimalism. And as this is our definition. Someone else can call minimalism something sure. else as well. But minimalism is the thing that helps us get past the things so we can make room for life's most important things. And so the key there is important things. Mm. And understanding when you're talking about the epistemology here and, and you're applying it to to pyramids, yeah. how are these important to me? And how would this discovery, how would knowing this be important to me? And it could very well be that it's not important at all and then I can dismiss it, right? Yeah. But if it is important in some way, and it could be important just because it's entertaining, I'm fascinated yeah. by it or I'm compelled by it for a short duration of time. And that's okay as well. But it's important only if it's compelling to me. Yeah. Now, if I go to you and say, TK, I need you to, I, you have to read this book about the pyramids, right? You must watch this video. Yeah. Now I'm prescribing something that may yeah. not be important to you at all. Speaking of prescriptions, I think there's one other area that often is confusing for folks. When mm. people talk talk about how might your life be better with less, they append it with physical goods, yeah. material possessions, yeah. right? As yeah. you said. And so then therefore we conflate minimalism with 
organizing or Marie Kondo's tidying up. Yeah. But I would say that tidying up, I'm not going to say it has nothing to do with minimalism, sure. but it has way less to do with minimalism than how we think. Because when we're right. thinking, we're thinking about all of these other types of clutter. Right. And that's what I'm going to talk to you about today. It's yes, there is philosophical or mental clutter, emotional clutter, spiritual clutter, calendar clutter. We just did an episode about food clutter and it has nothing to do with the material possessions. Yeah. We can start with the things, but quite often the problem is organizing or tidying up. We did a whole thing with uh, Marie, Marie Kondo recently. Yeah. You know, she admitted that like, now that I have three kids, the tidying up thing doesn't really work that well for yeah. me. Yeah. And what I realized when I first stumbled into minimalism, yeah. it worked for people who are young, single people traveling the world, mm. but it also worked for people like Leo Babalta and his wife who have six kids together in a blended family and they are a minimalist family. Wow. And I realized, oh, you're setting up some boundaries in your life and those boundaries are much more adjustable than just the prescriptions, the rules of tidying up. Erica, I'd love to send you a copy of our, actually it's free, you can download it for free. It's the Minimalist Rule Book, 16 Rules for Living with Less, but we're, we tricked you. It's not, there are no rules there. They're just boundaries and they're adjustable yeah. boundaries for simplifying your life and living more intentionally. 16 different ways to live more intentionally. You can download it for free over at theminimalists.com slash rulebook, or you can find it on our resources page over at theminimalists.com. And what else? Let us know in the comments. Is there anything that you think has nothing to do with minimalism? Let's start a discussion there in the comments. Sorry. Uh, I want to make one uh, quick little case without getting in the weeds, why it could be deemed as important to wrestle with issues like who created the pyramids or other seemingly unanswerable questions like what is the nature of time? Do aliens exist? And things of that sort. If we spend all of our time only focusing on day-to-day -day issues that pertain to our survival, we limit, the, we limit the capacity for our imagination and we limit the development of our critical thinking skills. It's only when we exercise our minds by wrestling with things for which there are no easy answers that we develop our full potential. So think about it in terms of sports. Like, how do you practice in sports? What's the definition of practice? Well, you subject yourself to constraints and challenges that are more difficult than what's required of you in the performance so that when you go back to the performance, it's actually easier, right? So you, you are practicing well when what you're doing at practice is harder than what you actually do in the fight, in the race, in the swimming contest, in the tennis match or what have you. Well, there's the philosophical version of that as well. When you wrestle with these really deep, complex issues for which there are no easy answers, think about what that does to your thinking to your problem-solving skills when you come back to the everyday stuff of just getting through a day, making decisions about work, making decisions about family. Questions about who built the pyramids are so much more elusive, but it expands your mind in a way that yields benefits with a lot of the practical stuff that we can't ignore. And expand your mind because there may not be an answer. And also forming a detente with the fact that you're not going to have an answer yeah. for everything is one of the ways that we get comfortable in our discomfort because I'm a problem solver and I want the answer. I want it right there That's in front right. of me. But sometimes there just isn't an answer. Or if there is an answer, it's an unknowable answer. Mm. Our friend Sam Harris talks about this. Right now, there is an, a specific integer of the number of birds that are flying above the surface of the earth. 
but that is completely unknowable by us. Yeah, yeah. And that number changes every millisecond, probably, right? Yeah. And But it is an actual number that could theoretically be tracked, but we will never know that. And you could drive yourself crazy needing to know that. Mm. But part of knowing is also understanding that you're not going to know everything. Let's dive into a question here from Alex. This is Alex B. from Mount Pleasant, North Carolina, a fellow Patreon subscriber. I love my wife and our soon-to-be firstborn child due in March, but there is one problem. My wife works a job in education that clearly makes her dissatisfied due to systematic pressures, violence in the classroom, and a generally poor work environment, all while earning a below-average salary. We have spoken about how this job makes her feel physically and emotionally multiple times. She acknowledges that she is open and willing to find a new job, but every time that I offer my help, she reverts back to not wanting to leave her current position. The only thing she will communicate is that she wants to stay at her current job because she knows what to expect, even though it isn't what she wants. She then proceeds to quietly shut down and remove herself from the conversation. I have and will continue to be available when it comes to searching for jobs, applying for positions for her, writing her cover letter, and creating her resume. I am willing to help support her in whatever way I can so she can find joy and passion in whatever she chooses next. I have a universal problem. I brought the horse to water, but it won't drink. I know we can't change the people around us, so is it time for me to step back and be on standby for the day that my wife potentially changes her mind? So the line that Alex is talking about here is you can't change the people around you, but you can change the people around you. And when I talk about that, what I'm not advocating, Alex, is, well, yeah, it sounds like you just need to leave your wife in the dust and um, surround yourself with some people who <laughs> might be more like minded. Obviously, we're in a different pr predicament here. TK, I'm really interested in your thoughts. And then I'll get back to what I would say to him. But what do you have to say to Alex? Yeah, I would say uh, your wife doesn't suffer from an information problem. Uh, it's a feasibility problem. Is is that a word, uh, Professor? Feasibility? Mm -hmm. Okay. Because the other day I, I added illity to something and he was like, that's a needless variant. <laughs> I, my confidence has been shaken ever since. <laughs> Every time I talk, I'm like, am I just full of needless variants? <laughs> is my whole life a needless variant? Hey, okay. Sean, thanks for this tangent. <laughs> Sorry. My bad. All right. Your wife doesn't suffer from an information problem, but rather it's a feasibility issue, meaning that she doesn't need any more conversation about what she would be happier doing. She doesn't need any more conversation about why she doesn't like her current job. That's not the hard part. And it never is. When you think about the changes that we try to make in our lives, you can ask almost anyone and they'll tell you there's something that they would like to be doing a little bit better. I like to exercise more. I like to eat healthier. I like to spend more time with my family. But the hard question is always, how do I integrate the knowledge of what I think I should do or the knowledge of what I want to do into the particular life that is mine hmm. with all of the unique challenges and the way those conditions come together to define my life. That's incredibly difficult. And you can't help a person with that by giving them the pros and cons or giving them the arguments for why they just ought to change or by accurately predicting how unhappy they're going to be in the future if they stay on the same path. Hmm. You have to find a way to help them see a different way forward that looks feasible for them, given the unique context that is their life and the challenges that come along with it. So if if she's telling you, 
I want something different. I don't like where I am. But then every time you say, all right, let's make it happen, she gets intimidated and shuts down. Then that means she's open to the possibility you're presenting to her. But there's something about the way you're approaching the conversation around a game plan or the strategization itself that just feels overwhelming. And so I would put my attention there and say, how can I break down this process in a way that allows her to take forward progress without feeling like it's work, without feeling like it's something that she can get wrong? So here's an example of something that my wife and I are doing. She's got this box of stuff. And the other night, she's like, I need help with this stuff. And so we sit down and she pulls out all these things. And she's like, now I got this. And she gives an argument for each thing, why, why, why she must keep it in the box. And it's like 20 different things. And all of these arguments are pretty difficult to get around. And I say, you know what? Let's do this. Let's put everything back in the box and let's come back to this tomorrow. And we're going to do this every night this week. We're going to spend no more than 15 minutes considering one thing in the box. You're going to pull one thing out of the box and each night we're going to look at that and we're going to talk about it for 15 minutes and then we're going to make some kind of decision. And we had our first night last night, we pulled one thing out of the box and we got rid of most of the stuff, like 75% of the elements involved with that one thing. We were able to get rid of it. She felt so much better. And I says, we're stopping right there. We're ending on a good note. We're coming back tomorrow with the second thing. And that's something that feels less overwhelming for her. So is it possible to say something like, hey, look, we're not going to create a game plan. We know where you want to end up. Who knows how long it will take? What if we just said one night a week, we're going to sit down for 15 minutes and we're just going to talk about what an alternative might look like. And we don't have to make any commitments or any decisions. And that can get her to commit to the process of coming back to this every day or every week until some progress is made. And whether it's that that I suggested or something else, at the end of the day, it's about figuring out a way to make it feasible. What you're talking about to me, and I like to make this distinction between help and support. Mm. And you can try to drag her in the direction in which you think she wants to move, right? Mm -hmm. And she may even intellectually want to end up over there. But how good is she going to feel if you have to drag her all the way over That's there? Right. And if that happened literally, she's going to be bruised up and scarred and you're going to be in divorce court really soon. Yeah. In fact, Alex, if your wife came to me, right, or she called into the show and she was like, hey, here's what I'm looking to do. I would tell her, you need to leave where you are as close to immediately as possible, <laughs> as soon as possible so that it's not a detriment to your existing life, but it's, it is a detriment right now, staying where you are. There's a lot of discontent, a lot of stress, you're underpaid, you're probably underappreciated as well. And you can show her those things, but forcing her in a particular direction right. is not helpful at all. Yes, right. the, the least helpful person I know is the helpful man who tries to help everyone. I'm dragging you wherever I need you to go. However, what TK is talking about, it feels helpful, but what he's talking about is support. Hey, I'm here for, with an additional perspective. I'm here to have a shoulder to cry on, an ear to listen. I'm here if you need me. And even if it's just 15 minutes once a week, let's start there. We're going to start somewhere. I'm going to meet you where you are as opposed to dragging you where I think you should be immediately. Because let's face it, Alex, it might have taken you a long time to figure out this whole simplifying thing, this minimalism thing. And I could see how someone would say, what the heck does this question have to do with minimalism? But we're talking about career clutter here. That's right. That's where we spend most of our waking hours. 
And if you're not doing something that aligns with your passions, something that you're compelled by, something you're willing to devote yourself to, then most of your waking hours are going to be stressful. They're going to be filled with anxiety. Alex, I'd love to send you a copy of our first book. It's called Minimalism, Live a Meaningful Life. In that book, we talked about the five different areas of intentional living, and one of them has to do with cultivating your passion. I think that'll help you and specifically support your wife and what she's trying to do as well. We have a question here from Mm -hmm. Teresa. This is Teresa from Detroit. I'm a new subscriber and first time calling in. Wanted to make a suggestion for your non-minimalist topic, and that would be anti-racism. But I'm just curious to hear your thoughts on this. I know that being biracial myself, I encounter a lot of difficult, frustrating circumstances around this. And over the last several months and since discovering all of you and clearing my space, I have more time to think about these sorts of things, how they impact me and the world around me. So TK, I'm against racism. Let's pretend you're for racism here and we'll have a debate. <laughs> no, it's, it's one of those terms, anti-racism, that seems as though it can only be virtuous. In fact, it seems like mm-hmm. so like obvious, right? Hmm. But sadly, it's not necessarily obvious. And we even have to break down what we're talking about when we talk about this. So when we're talking to Teresa about her question, first off, what does anti-racism have to do with minimalism or does it have anything to do with minimalism? And then Hmm. what are your thoughts? So it absolutely has something to do with minimalism. And here's why. When it comes to this topic, here are a few questions that anyone can ask themselves. When the subject of racism comes up, Do you get uncomfortable? Do you feel tension? Do you feel like running away from the discussion? Do you feel defensive? Do you feel angry? Well, all of those feelings are a form of psychological baggage that you have around that topic and conversations oriented towards that topic. Would it benefit you and perhaps the people that you love and the people that you need to have conversations with to unpack that baggage? I think the answer is affirmative. And that says nothing whatsoever about the conclusions that you come to. I was recently watching a debate between Gavin Ortland, who is a Protestant Christian, and Trent Horn, who is a Catholic Christian. The two of them were debating sola scriptura. And when I watched this debate, both of them were so sharp, it almost seemed like the one that was right was the one that had just finished talking, right? Until the next one got up. But when I watched that debate, I thought to myself, my gosh, if everyone who disagrees could talk to each other and about each other in the way that these two guys are doing right now, what a fascinating world we would have. There were no insults. There was charitable interpretation of one another's words. There was the utmost respect and none of it was pretentious or performative. They both complimented what was good about the other person's presentation and argument. They both acknowledged one another's sincerity and passion for the truth. They both assumed good faith and integrity on the part of the other. And you left that debate maybe even having your own beliefs confirmed, maybe questioning what you came into the bait presupposing, but you definitely left the bait. And if you could look at the the comments under that video, you definitely left the debate feeling like, man, these guys just put on a clinic for how people can argue in a way that makes the world better. Now, imagine if we all woke up tomorrow morning 
with the same political beliefs that we have, the same beliefs on race that we have, the same economic philosophies that we have, but we were committed to talking about it like Gavin, Ortland, and Trent Horn. My gosh, like what a fascinating world that would be. But we don't do that. When discussions on racism happen, emotions flare up, people start yelling at each other, and within 10 seconds, the discussion gets completely politicized such that no matter what you believe, it gets associated with the political agenda or political party. And then the argument becomes about left versus right. It becomes about Trump versus Biden or, or Republican versus Democrat or something along those lines. And a whole bunch of interesting philosophical questions and scientific questions get completely ignored and completely lost because we're all mad at each other, bitter at each other, suspicious at each other. Unpacking that? is what minimalism is all about. How much better would your life, would your conversations with different people be better? How much better would it be if you had less bias, less judgment towards the people who think differently than you? You know, one of the things we we talked about, uh, we did a whole episode on how to have difficult conversations. Mm-hmm. And we talked about how it's impossible for a family to flourish, for a relationship to flourish, for a nation to flourish, when difficult discussions can't be had, when our only way of coping with difficult discussions is labeling people as immoral because of their disagreements with us or centering people and shutting them down and shouting them down because we don't understand where they're coming from. So that's a lot of foundation, but the topic of racism and anti-racism is so inflammatory, not because the issues themselves are inflammatory, but because of all the baggage we bring to it. Yeah. And, you know, I want to extend what you're saying there, but I'll bring this to the table and you tell me what you think about it. Most debates are unlike the debate that you just illustrated. Mm -hmm. Most debates are bringing a lot of baggage to the table and then using it as some sort of a weapon to try to pound your opponent into the ground. That's right. There's very little understanding there. There's not an attempt to understand. I was watching uh, a debate a few weeks ago about abortion, which is a topic that it's another third rail topic, right? And the person on one side says, no matter what you say to me, there's nothing you can say that will get me to change my mind on this issue. Mm. And I was like, oh, you've already lost the debate then. Yeah. Because if you're unwilling to change your mind about something, you're not even having a debate at all. You're having an argument. You're having a fight. And I can say, yeah, it's unlikely you'll change my point of view because it's well considered, but I'm always open to new information, even on this contentious topic. Because if I'm not, what do I have? I have information clutter. You talked about it being inflammatory. That's what inflammation is in the body, right? It's the body essentially attacking itself. But these debates were attacking each other and it's inflammatory. You don't actually get anything out of it besides maybe a little bit of entertainment or some information, but there's information clutter, there's entertainment clutter. And that's where I think minimalism really does come into a conversation like this. It allows us to step back and be more considerate about the resources, the understanding, the education that we have. Yeah, to your point, If you're having a debate with someone where the goal is to prove to them that you're smarter than them or morally superior to them, then you've already lost the debate. You've already lost. 
And so where, where the perspective of minimalism and its emphasis on simplicity can be brought to bear on a topic like debates is you can help people have more efficient and effective conversations by challenging them to ask, why are you having that conversation? What are you expecting from it? Is the purpose of the conversation to agree with one another, to alpha one another, to affirm one another, to find a solution, to identify a common ground, to entertain an audience regardless of what we really think to be true? All of those are on the table and more. But if we don't know why we're having the discussion and what the goal of that discussion is, then we are bound to end that discussion feeling like our energy has been drained or our time has been wasted. And so I think discussions to get back to this topic, Teresa, I would love to hear about some of your experiences, some of your challenges, and if you have any particular questions with this topic. But as far as the question about the connection between that and minimalism, I would say anything you can do to help yourself and the people around you address the tension and discomfort they feel and be able to unload that and be able to discuss that vulnerably and transparently so that they can find the strength and the wisdom to let it go will make you and those people better and ultimately sets us up for a freer world. And recognizing that dogma can come up in virtually any conversation. I remember when Ryan and I in 2010 started simplifying our lives before we even, I was 2009 for me, before we even started theminimalists.com, before the podcast and the films and the social media, we weren't the minimalist yet. I was just a minimalist or I was becoming a minimalist. I realized that there was a lot of dogma that people had and then they wanted to project that onto me and say, oh, if he's simplifying his life, he must be judging me because if I was simplifying my life, I'd be judging him, right? And yeah. so judgment becomes a mirror in these instances. We also did a, a whole episode about judgment, but I'd like to take a little bit further here with this conversation and say that self-righteousness becomes a drug. Yeah. It becomes, and it's a, a disease as well. That that drug of self-righteousness makes us more and more and more self-righteous and our pedestals get taller and taller and taller yeah, yeah. so we can look down on more and more people. Yeah. Just a few weeks ago, we did an episode with Dr. Paul Saladino, brilliant guy. And we did the episode about food clutter. We'll put a link to that in the show notes so people can check it out. But it's amazing. Every time we have him on, the people who get truly upset at us, and clearly they haven't even listened. They're not even willing to listen to the conversation. Because if you listen to the conversation, you realize he's not prescribing anything to anyone. In fact, we even had one of our writers from Minimalism Life over at minimalism.com who writes essays for the website over there say, now that you've platformed this hateful person, I want to withdraw all of my work from minimalism.com. And I was like, I'm not going to argue with you. I'm not going to debate it, right? Because you've already made your mind up. And the only response that I can have to that with someone who shows up inflamed and dogmatic is I understand. Because I'm not trying, you know, what do they say? Like, uh, don't argue with fools because... From a distance, you can't tell who is who, right? Yeah, yeah, the Jay-Z yeah, yeah. line, right? Yeah, yeah. And and I felt like that, like it is my it's my default setting to want to argue. But wait, you didn't yeah. see this. Wait, I but that becomes my own self-righteousness there. And so I can't have a 
fruitful conversation. If you hurl your self-righteousness at me yeah. and I'll meet you in the middle with my own self-righteousness. No, if anything, that brings us further apart. Yeah. So one example from my life, I just thought of with having conversations about race and, and, and the importance of simplifying, unpacking things. I remember having someone ask me if I thought any problems in black communities today are the result directly or indirectly of slavery in America. And I said, yes, I do. And they asked me why. And I says, well, tacit knowledge is a real form of knowledge. Most of the things that dictate a people's beliefs and behaviors has to do with knowledge that is culturally transmitted through the way that it's embodied in lived communities. And so everything we do isn't the result of what we are explicitly taught. Much of it is what we catch, right? Through observation, through our mentors, through our role models, through the people that we see in our neighborhoods and so on. And you can have certain psychological traits, certain philosophical beliefs, certain matters of self-perception that get handed down from generation to generation precisely because they are not explicitly spelled out, but they're culturally transmitted. They are embodied. It's a form of tacit knowledge. When I explained this, I thought, it would lead to a conversation. Maybe they'd ask some questions. Maybe they would challenge me on philosophical grounds. Maybe they would question my understanding of tacit knowledge. And they got angry and they said, I don't owe you anything. <laughs> and I said, well, that's a really interesting response because I didn't know we were talking about you and I, mm. right? And I didn't say anything about you owing me something. In fact, I didn't make any political or economic claims at all about what I think we should do about this idea that I accept is true. But here someone was reacting to a perceived political implication of the idea mm. rather than my presentation of the idea itself because there was a sense of fear. Well, like, if, if I allow that idea to stand or if I allow myself to think critically of that idea... I might have to endorse a policy that frightens the hell out of me. And I don't even know what that policy is for you, but I wanted to flirt with the idea a little bit, philosophize over the idea a little bit. And so this is an example of, of how it benefited us to take some time and unpack that. Like, okay, before we move on, let's unpack that because we've got some baggage that we're bringing into this conversation that is causing us to not hear one another. And that's not just true of racism, but that's true of anything that we talk about. And quite often when we're talking about these things, it's binary. And yeah. therefore, in order for me to be right, you must be wrong on all accounts that don't completely conform to my worldview. Yeah. And we get into a lot of trouble there for several reasons. One is it doesn't open up a conversation at all. But two, it kind of makes me look silly. Yeah. And even if I'm rhetorically competent, right? And I can yeah. get up there and I give you all the points or whatever, yeah. but eventually you start to look silly because the whole the whole argument breaks down when you realize like, oh, they're not approaching this this conversation from a a, a fact finding mission. Yeah. They're approaching this as a um as like a UFC fight. Yeah. In order for me to win, you have to lose. That's right. That's right. And we've all seen examples of that where, and, 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 and I've been on the defensive end of this as well, where if someone is asking a question or they're, they're challenging a belief that you have, they might just be doing it out of curiosity. 
Mm. You know, or or they might even been, be doing it because they want to believe what you believe, but they're afraid if they just parrot you, they're going to look stupid and they want to believe what you believe with integrity. They mm. like what you're saying, but they want to believe it with intellectual honesty. So they want to know your logic. And so they're pushing you to see what you would say about the challenges they know they're going to get if they go out repeating you. But when they ask you those questions, maybe you're insecure and you get defensive and you get mad and you feel like you're being attacked. There goes that conversational baggage again. I never understood this about politicians as well, because we would call someone a flip-flopper because they change their mind. How dare you? Or I remember there was this one politician who's like, I've been consistent for 30-something years. Hmm. It's like, oh, so you've never changed your mind about anything? (laughs) That's not a selling point to me. (laughs) An unwillingness to change one's mind is a bug, not a a feature. Yeah, if, if you want to understand why people have such a hard time admitting that they're wrong, just look at how people behave when they're right. It's as equally difficult to be right as it is to be wrong. In the same way that it takes a lot of self-control and a lot of honesty and humility to admit that you're wrong, it also takes an equal amount of that to admit that you're right without being obnoxious and self-righteous about it Mm -hmm. without gloating in it, to be right in a way that is generous and gracious towards the other person who is choosing to stand corrected in the light of new facts. And sometimes when people say, I was wrong, I made a mistake, I handled that situation improperly, instead of saying, hey, we respect you for having the intellectual honesty and integrity to do that. Instead, what we do is, no, don't apologize now. Yeah. Don't apologize to me now. And Keep it's that like, same oh. energy. <laughs> right, right. Okay, so now we're incentivizing a world where the next time someone feels like this person, yeah. they're just going to double down and start making excuses and saying how they weren't really wrong. It was just this and that. And that's not really what we want. You no. know? Yeah, and then there's, of course, this... I told you so club that forms and social Mm. media really amplifies the I told you so's, right? And so no matter what it is, it could have any contentious issue. And by the way, plenty of issues that shouldn't be contentious at all become contentious because of the I told you so club. Oh, see, you were wrong. You were wrong. And I was consistent the whole time. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so you weren't willing to change your mind either. Go ahead. ahead. A question for you. What do you think about because there is an aspect of flip-flopping that is kind of annoying and that and that um, is worthy of being called out. And that's sometimes the tendency of politicians to subscribe to or pretend to believe whatever is convenient, mm-hmm. you know? When it's politically convenient, uh, yeah. that's a different thing, right? Mm-hmm. Because they're not actually changing their mind about anything because they don't actually have a thought about that. It's just, okay, 51.2% of the audience thinks this, then I agree (laughs) with that. And that is a problem because it means you're not grounded in anything. It simply means that you're willing to, you're going to sway with the popular opinion. It becomes populism. And the problem with with populism is uh, the populace has often made really egregious decisions on behalf of the minority that has harmed the minority over many decades or centuries even. Yeah. Yeah. But TK, I don't owe you anything. (laughs) Just kidding. I owe him $4 for a coffee he bought me last week. (laughs) (laughs) We've got a question here from Marcy. Hi, this is Marcy from Prescott, Arizona. Regarding episode 354, you say, 
when you're free from pleasing all the people, you're free from needing all the things. So I'd like to know what your thoughts are on people pleasers and caregivers. The intent is different between the two, I think, but the actions are quite similar. I saw this quote and it was written for caregivers, but it reminds me of people pleasers. And it says, it is unsustainable to live your life in the little spaces left in between everyone else's. You must tend to yourself too. You must fight back against a current that pulls your life into the world of afterthought. I'm curious your thoughts on these um, uh, words and the caregivers and the people pleasers and how it all relates to becoming free from needing all the things. So TK, this is one of your quotes, actually. Once you're free from pleasing all the people, you're free from needing all the things. And I think the things can be literal things, material possessions here. I'd like to get to the essence of what you were talking about, because yes, it's true that you can buy a bunch of things and please people because now they think a particular way of you because you have the luxury car or you have the really nice dress or you've got the Prada bag or the YSL belt or whatever it might be. And you're pleasing them in some way, but you're really pleasing yourself at the end of the day. You're pleasing yourself by saying, look at me. I have the status symbols. You can pat me on the back now because I've signaled to you that I'm worthy of your praise. But let's expand on that a little bit. Mm. When you're free of pleasing all the people, you're ultimately just free. You're free. Yeah. I mean, every goal requires a level of skill that is conducive to attaining that goal. If I want to be an MMA fighter, then I have to develop my fighting skill to a level of competency that's capable of holding my ground against other MMA fighters. Well, what level of skill does it take to please all the people? That sounds to me so vague Hmm. that it is hopelessly immeasurable. You truly do need to do everything to please all the people. And then you become that flip-flopper you were just talking about on the previous question, right? That's right. And now all of a sudden, you can't remember your position on anything because whoever is in front of you, you become a mirror of that person or that group. But even if you have a small group, you can't mirror everything to please them. And you're going to end up displeasing them. You're going to end up upsetting them. It's not your responsibility to unupset someone, but ultimately they will be upset because your point of view doesn't match their point of view. And so now you're going to do these sort of twister moves to try to appease everyone. You end up appeasing no one ultimately, and you make yourself miserable in the process. That's right. When you need to please everybody, you're living in a constant state of audience capture where your message your facial expressions, your body language, the words you use, the things you laugh at, the music you pretend to like, is all based on the assumptions that you are making about the person you're talking to and the predictions you have for how they may react. And you're playing this game of social chess that is so anxiety-ridden because first of all, how can I possibly predict with any reasonable degree of accuracy what you're going to say in response to what I think. Mm. And so not only do I have to get that right, but then I have to do the next step of pretending 
to say something, pretending to think something that I don't really believe, that I don't really take seriously. And that's just really a stressful life. And so I don't think the problem is enjoying the process of pleasing another human being. The problem is that it's unrealistic to think that you could do this for everyone. So I'll give an example. Suppose my great joy in life is to say hello to people. Is there anything wrong with saying hello to people? No. But suppose I change that goal to, I want to say hello to all the people. Well, now I just took something that gives me joy and I turned it into a goal that has just set me up for a stressful life. How can I ever be sure that I'm not missing anyone? How can I ever be sure that everyone's getting my hello, right? Now, instead of focusing on the people that are around me, instead of focusing on the guy that's right there, I've already said hi to him, by the way. I'm, I'm, I'm reaching for new numbers now. I'm trying to get on YouTube and get a million followers. I'm trying to get a megaphone to get the other people that haven't driven by. I'm not only taking my attention away from the now and away from my sphere of influence, but I'm trying to control other areas of life that are outside of my true locus of control. It's the same way with pleasing people. One of my good friends, Isaac Morehouse said it best, decide who you want to be a hero for and then ignore everyone else. If you want to satisfy your kids, focus on your kids. Mm -hmm. You want to satisfy your lover, focus on your lover. Mm. You want to take care of your parents or you're committed to taking care of them, take good care of them, your parents. There is great joy in saying, here is a community or here is a member of my family or here is a human being, here is a customer that I want to serve by creating this kind of value for them. Or I'm a stand-up comedian for people who like these kinds of jokes, right? I'm a hairdresser for people who like this kind of style. There's great joy in that. But the moment you say, I've got to please them all, I've got to serve them all. They all need to be a customer. They all need to be a fan. They all need to be a friend. They all need to be an ally. They all need to be someone who finds me funny, someone who finds me smart, interesting, nice, moral, or whatever it may be. You've lost before you've already begun and you've taken yourself out of that primordial state of, of, of doing what makes you come alive from a place of self-authenticity. Yeah, you took the yeah. fun out of it. You took the joy out of it. Yeah. And... What's fascinating, I was driving with my wife yesterday. I'll even take this a step further from what Isaac talks about because I think trying to be a hero even for a short a, a short list of people, you know, maybe there's two or three or five people you want to be a hero for, that too can become a prison, right? Because you'll never live up to hero status because yeah. you're not a hero, right. right? You're not a superhero, right? And being the hero... Mm based on three other people's expectations, eventually you're going to let them down. I was driving my wife yesterday and we were driving down our street, headed home, and some of our neighbors were out walking their dog. And I always wave, you know, whenever I'm dr driving by them, I wave. And she's, and they didn't wave back at all. <laughs> and Bex gets offended on my behalf and she goes, oh, they didn't even wave back. <laughs> I said, Bex, I don't wave for them. I wave for me. Mm. Because I'm not trying to be the hero to them. Yeah. I just feel good by releasing the, by acknowledging other people, right? Yeah. But if I needed to be acknowledged back by them, now all of a sudden I'm holding on to some sort of resentment. Mm. And so what does minimalism have to do with this? Well, that's a kind of hoarding, right? It's that's emotional right. hoarding. Oh, they need to live up to my expectations. And damn it, TK, if I wave at you and you don't wave back to me, and by the way, 
you need to wave back to me with the appropriate hand for the right amount of time. That's right. And if I say howdy to you, you don't just say howdy back. You tell me how you're doing. Oh, what am I doing to myself? I'm making myself miserable through my expectations. But if my standard is whenever I see a neighbor, I wave at them. Whatever I get back, I get back. I don't need it. I have no attachment to what the outcome might be. Well, now I'm free. And therein lies the answer to a question you get a lot when you talk about being uh, non-attached, unattached to the result. Mm -hmm. And that question is, well, what's the point? Oh, come on. Stop pretending like you're not attached to the result. You're sharing your thoughts, aren't you? Mm -hmm. You're writing your thoughts, aren't you? Surely you're attached to the result that I would see this tweet and retweet it or like it, right? And and I think what gets missed in that, and, and here's what you just revealed, the reason you say hi to the person you drive by or walk by is because that's the person you enjoy being. And if you decided, I'm going to stop saying hi to strangers because I'm afraid that they may not say hi back, now you're being someone that you don't even enjoy being just to protect yourself from being someone who looks stupid or something along those lines. And that's no fun. It's like, just give yourself permission to be the person that you enjoy being. And sometimes that will make people's day. Sometimes people won't notice, but you can always find fun or fulfillment if you walk that path because you're not doing it because you're attached to the result. You're, you're doing it because this is the way I like to live my life. And it's just gravy on the mashed potatoes when someone says, hey, I appreciate you doing that. Thank you so much. I would have done it anyway. But thank you. That's kind of cool to hear you say it impacted you too. Anthony DeMello talks about there are two types of desires. And I think that's what you're illustrating here. The first type of desire is an attachment. I need a particular outcome. Mm. And therefore, I'm doing this just to get the outcome. Yeah. The other desire, and of course, you know, the Buddha didn't jump up and say, you should have no desires ever. And by the way, good <laughs> luck. Even then, you have a desire to have no desires. It's a fool's errand, right? Mm. And yet, there's a type of desire where you do whatever you do. You write regardless of the outcome. You go for a walk, not because there's a destination in mind, but because you desire to walk. There's nothing wrong with that desire. But as soon as you have a particular outcome that you become attached to, that's where misery, suffering, stress, it enters our lives. Because if I don't get that outcome, and what my desire was pointless. I should have never had the desire in the first place. Well, there are the other desires though, where if I get it, great. <laughs> yeah. And if I don't get it, that's okay too. Too bad. Yeah. But my happiness does not depend on it. Mm-hmm. Katie has a question for us. This is Katie calling from Evanston, Illinois. Have you ever considered donating a kidney? You have to, but only need one. So why not minimize it? I'm seriously considering donating it as an altruistic donor since listening to Stephen Dubner's Freakonomics radio episode, Ask Not What Your Podcast Can Do For You. One altruistic donor can be the catalyst to anywhere from two to 30 transplants. Curious as to your thoughts from a minimalist perspective. Katie, what a thoughtful question. Brava to you for asking it. I'm actually an organ donor. I never really thought much about it before. I wrote an essay about it over at theminimalists.com slash donor. We'll put a link to that in the show notes. So I'm an organ donor. 
even though for the longest time I wasn't, it's an opt-in system here in the United States. So you have to opt in to becoming an organ donor. But I realized I had a friend who needed an organ transplant and uh, it saved her life because someone who died ended up donating their organs. Most of the time, the default is just, no, please don't donate my organs. And so I'm not prescribing this to anyone else. Have I ever thought about giving up a kidney? No, uh, not while I'm alive at least, but you can have both of mine if I die. And uh, the reason I haven't is because there are often some complications when you donate one kidney. I've actually talked to a few medical doctors about this because I did go down that path for a while. Like, oh, maybe this this would be a great way for me to contribute. And what does this have to do with minimalism? I think ultimately Hmm. giving is living. And contribution, contributing beyond yourself in a meaningful way, we talk about that a lot on this show one of the most meaningful ways to help someone stay alive. That's why I decided to be an organ donor. But I will say this, on a long enough timeline, you will let go of everything. And so if if it feels compelling to you to let go of your kidney now, I'm not going to stand in your way. But also anyone who's on the fence about this, well, at least having the opportunity to donate your organs when you pass away, you can save a lot of lives even after you're gone. Yeah, this is a great way to leave a legacy. And it it highlights for me something that when people hear, they often just assume that it's some kind of fluff, but there's really something substantial behind it. And that is the idea that you don't need to be rich in order to be generous. One of the problems with most conversations around abundance is that our concept of abundance is very scarce. We have a limited notion of what it means to have something to offer that's basically limited to having a lot of money. And if you don't have a lot of money, well, you don't have anything to offer. And one of the benefits of minimalism is it can help you think about abundance abundantly by taking a look at all the different ways you can enhance another person's quality of life. And being an organ donor is just one of many aspects of that that anyone can do. Um, that, that, that question you asked, you pointed out a possibility that I had and consider before. So I wrote down the name of the podcast and I'm going to check it out. Yeah, great. Uh, com slash donor. It's the name of an essay, actually. So uh, it's called Here, Have an Organ. You can check mm. that out. We'll put a link to it in the show notes for this episode at theminimalists.com slash podcast. Let's move over to some social media questions here. We have one from Patreon. Chaitanya asks, personally, I'm not attracted to a life with children, but there's always a little bit of FOMO that follows me about it. How does the decision to not have children connect with minimalism? I applaud you for asking this question. Quite often, society gives us a template and then we follow that path. I think it was Joseph Campbell who said that if the path you're following is well-worn, you're following someone else's path. Now, that doesn't mean don't follow that path. Quite often, that could be a great path for you. But if you were simply handed a template and now you're saying, well, I'm supposed to get married at this age. I graduate from college from this age. I go into this amount of debt. Yeah. I have to buy a house. I have to have this kind of job. I have to have this kind of degree. Yeah. And then, of course, I have to have 2.3 kids and a cat and a dog and a yard nothing wrong with any of those things. I'm not going to sit here on this podcast and say, you shouldn't have any of those things. I'm saying that if it's not appropriate for you, you're questioning these things. Well, bravo, because if you decide to go that route, then you're being intentional and you're being intentional either way. You're at a bifurcation point because you can't really have half a kid. Um, You're either going to have a kid or you're not. You're going to have multiple kids, right? But by saying, hey, maybe I don't want to go down that path. 
that's totally fine. And in fact, this is, I rarely, I never make recommendations, but the closest I would ever make to a recommendation is almost no one should have kids. That's the thing I've learned from from having a, a child myself. We are simply not prepared to be parents. And when I think about my role as a parent, it's not to parent Ella, to force her into wisdom. It's to not screw her up as a parent, to make sure she doesn't have a bunch of things she needs to unlearn when she's 18 or 28 or 38 years old and all of the trauma that is associated with growing up because we get a lot of trauma. In fact, we were just at an event recently, uh, TK, where the gentleman came up and spoke and he was a former Navy SEAL and he had a lot of trauma in his life. He had PTSD, but it wasn't from his service in the military. It was from the first six years of his life, from his childhood that he was still trying to work through. And it caused a lot of alcohol and drug abuse. So bringing children into the world, recognizing that you're bringing, you're potentially bringing a lot of suffering into the world as well. And we amplify a child's suffering throughout their life if we do things that traumatize them when they're young. And so bravo to you. If you're not ready to bring kids into the world, maybe you never want to bring kids into the world. That's okay. And this is where minimalism certainly applies here. We often talk about subtracting. Well, the best way to subtract something is before you even bring it into your house in the first place. And couldn't that certainly be said for other areas in our life, especially parenthood? Yeah, I I think about the phrase drink responsibly. It isn't drink or don't drink. It's drink responsibly, which means if you drink, do it healthfully. And I think that really can apply to anything. I don't think there's anything in life we can add the word responsibly to that decreases in value. Parent, responsibly. Have children, responsibly. Marry, responsibly. Love other people, responsibly. Spend time with your friends, responsibly. And that's what I'm hearing from you. Like, have children or parent or do whatever you do. Be single, responsibly. What does this have to do with minimalism? Well, minimalism is about choosing less. And what does it mean to choose less? It means to say no not necessarily forever, but to say no in the now moment to something that you could have or chase after. And and you don't say no because you believe that it's wrong. You say no because it's not right for me. And so for you to say at this stage of my life, taking on a family is not right for me, then that means you are choosing less Mm -hmm. and you are making your life better or upholding the high quality of life you already have by saying no to something that other people might think you should say yes to. And so for me, that's the essence of what minimalism is all about. As far as your fear that you might change your mind, well, it's better to take your direction than the other way around because I truly don't know what to say to someone who's like, hey, I just decided I'm having a bunch of kids, but you know, hey, maybe in five years, I don't want them anymore. Oh, <laughs> that's kind of scary, right? Yes. Um, on the other hand, if you say I'm deciding now that I won't have children, there are actually options, options, unconventional options 
for having children later on. So, yes, and I think yeah. when you think about it that way, that helps address the fear of missing out, which yeah. is the heart of her question here, right? The fear of missing out. And the thing that I'll say is consumerism, it amplifies the fear of missing out. And so that applies with our stuff, right? Because if we have the disease of more, I need more, more, more. I need more things. I need better things. I need a nicer car. I need an extra car. I need a bigger garage. I need a bigger living room. I need a second living room. I need a fourth bedroom, a fifth bathroom, more, 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 more. I always feel like what? I'm missing out. Minimalism, however, it amplifies the joy of missing out. There's a lot of joy and not being burdened by our excess things. Because as Dave Bruno says, your things are not passive. You have to take care of your things. If you bring a thing into your life, you have to worry about the thing. You have to charge the thing and repaint the thing and organize the thing and clean the thing and store the thing and find space for the thing and then replace the thing Mm. or repair the thing when it breaks. It's not passive to own these things. But parenting is certainly not passive. I can assure you that if you ignore your kids, CPS is going to be called. And so parenting is not passive. When you bring anything into your life, you have to take care of it physically. You also have to take care of it mentally and psychologically. And you have to worry about another human being. You have to worry about their suffering and their misery. You don't want to contribute to their suffering. And so minimalism certainly applies to parenting. And this is why minimalism was so appealing to me at the start, because I saw a lot of single people like, oh yeah, minimalism worked for them. And I was single and childless at the time because my marriage had just ended. And I'm like, oh, I need to simplify my life. But then I recognized a recipe that worked not just for childless young men. I was a young man once upon a time, TK. But I noticed a formula, not a formula, a recipe that worked really well for people like Joshua Becker, who had a couple kids in the suburbs, or Courtney Carver, who had a teenage daughter and lived in the city, or Leo Babalta, who was a super minimalist because he minimized all his condoms and had six kids. (laughs) 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 And so what I realized is, oh, yes, you can do this intentionally. Kids, no kids, minimalism is about being intentional with the resources that you have. Yeah. Let's get into another question here. This one's from Lauren on Patreon. How does minimalism relate to highly sensitive people? Well, I have two highly sensitive people in my home. My wife is a highly sensitive person. Like sounds really affect her. In fact, the reason, one of the reasons we moved out into the middle of nowhere up in Ojai is that sounds just bother her. If we lived in the city, any siren... Part of that is because she grew up on a farm. But then our daughter has something called SPD, sensory processing disorder. And I don't ever tell her she has a disorder because she's just highly sensitive to things. And quite often, this disorder that we have is a superpower in other ways, right? She's highly sensitive to the things in her environment. It could be people, it could be animals. There's this little bird that perches up on her window that I barely ever notice, but she notices it in such detail. She will sit, I kid you not, if we have the washing machine going, she'll often sit in front of it and just put her head against it like this. If you're watching the video version, (laughs) she just has her head right up against the washing machine and she'll watch the whole cycle go through for like 33 minutes. She's watching Mm. the washer and she's mesmerized 
by the way the water and the suds yeah. interact with the clothes because she doesn't need much to entertain herself, right? And so sensory processing disorder, highly sensitive people, that can be a superpower. It just means that you're good at what? Noticing. You're a hyper noticer. What does it mean to be present though? It means to notice what's going on around you. In fact, whenever we feel worried, we're not noticing what's going on in front of us. Yeah. We're noticing something that might happen in some non-existent hypothetical future, somewhere down the road. We're praying for something bad to That's happen. Right. And so I'm not noticing the beauty of what's going on here. I'm just frustrated about what might happen. Or I'm looking in the rear view and saying, I can't believe they screwed me over yesterday, whatever it is. <laughs> I'm noticing something that doesn't exist, the past. Yeah. And I'm forsaking what's going on right here in front of me. Yeah. So how does minimalism relate to highly sensitive people? Remember, the question of minimalism isn't how can I do less or have less, it's how might my life be better with less? How can I create space for more by letting go of that which holds me back? How can I, by letting go of that which weighs me down, latch on to that which lifts me up? How can I, by letting go of the things that make me feel caged and constrained, live a life that makes me feel flexible and free. So minimalism is all about the more, but directing the energy you put behind seeking more towards the things that really matter to you. If you're a highly sensitive person or you're in a relationship with a highly sensitive person, then that means you constantly have to say no to things that other people can say yes to or perhaps pressure you to say yes to mm. because of your need for special accommodations. And I watch you do this brilliantly and non-bitterly in a way that amazes me. Sometimes we've sat together eating and I, and I was like, are you jealous of me right now? Do you wish you could have what I'm having? And you're like, no, I'm having as good a time as you. I can't eat that though because my body would punish me so harshly. I wouldn't be able to sleep tonight if I had what you're having right now. And that's you in that moment saying no to something that I might be teasing you about not having. Mm -hmm. Or you've talked about it with going to restaurants and grocery stores. You have to be picky in a way that almost none of your friends have to be picky. Every place you go, you have to be like, mm, what can I have here? Mm -hmm. Because my body has sensitivities that either my friends don't have or that they're choosing to ignore, right? And, and, and there's a need to be deliberate and intentional. And that means you're constantly making trade-offs. You're saying, you know, I'm going to have to say no to going to that event because of my sensitivity to noise, or I need to live in this type of space. And in order to be able to afford that or make that realistic for me, then I'm going to have to say no to some of these other luxuries and amenities. And I'm also going to have to say no to a story that tells me I ought to be resentful and bitter about that being my life. Yeah. Yeah. What a good point. Because quite often what happens is we tune out our sensitivities. We try to ignore them. And our culture is pretty good at getting us to ignore those things, but we can't actually ignore them in the long term. What happens is the body keeps the score, right? And so, yes, you might feel a little bit of stress today and you compound that with the stress tomorrow yeah. and the stress the next day and over the next year and the next decade. And eventually you're forced to deal with it. But the beauty of recognizing your sensitivities is that a simple life is sensitive to the joys of living. Mm. 
You can sit there right in front of the washing machine and have everything you need to experience <laughs> joy. And in fact, that joy is within my daughter. It's not in the washing machine. And she realizes that. She's just noticing it. And she doesn't need that. To go back to the previous question, she doesn't need that to feel the joy. Yeah. She feels the joy and then witnesses the washing machine. Or if she wants to watch something on her tablet, she is joyous and then the video might amplify her joy, but the joy is already in her and she's sensitive to these things. So she doesn't even need much to experience that joy. But guess what? None of us need much to experience the joy. It's the default setting. It's been hammered out of us, beaten out of us. We think that we need to pursue joy. We need to pursue happiness. We need to pursue contentment. Mm. Those things only get covered up by the pursuit. And so when we stop pursuing it, we, uh, we remove those covers, those barriers, the, the cellophane that is yeah. covering up the joy in the first place. Yeah. Okay, what time is it? Oh, man, it's time for the lightning round where we answer your questions from TikTok. Yes, indeed. You can follow The Minimalist on TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at The Minimalist. Now, during the lightning round, we each have 60 seconds to answer your questions with a short, shareable, less than 140 character response. We put the text to these minimal maxims in the show notes over at theminimalists.com slash podcast so you can copy and share our pithy answers on social media, if you'd like. Looks like we have a question here from Ask Your Mom. Why do those of us who can afford expensive things very comfortably bother you so much? TK, why do you hate rich people? (laughs) (laughs) Now, to be fair, this was a response to a TikTok video we put out there. And it was talking about how quite often the things that we thought we wanted will make us miserable, right? And we did this whole thing about car payments. Remember the car video we did? It was a really popular TikTok video. Just hundreds and hundreds of thousands of views. But it triggered some people because they're saying, well, hey, wait a minute. I Maybe I have a $1,500 car payment or I have a $100,000 car. And TK, why don't you want me to be happy? And so let's get 60 seconds on the clock for TK. And what would your response be to ask your mom? Minimalism is a creative path for the bloated, not a consolation prize for the broke. If you are someone who is struggling to make ends meet, or you're suffering through a life in which you lack the economic resources necessary to survive and thrive, minimalism is not a message that's here to preach to you some unsympathetic idea that you ought to just put on a fake smile and ignore your legitimate needs and healthy desires. Nor is it a philosophy that says you ought to subjugate your life choices to someone else's arbitrary opinions about what you should possess or pursue. Minimalism is a way, not the way, for those who suffer from the self-diagnosed condition of consumeristic gluttony. Those whose cabinets are full, but whose lives might be devoid of meaning. Or those who pursue and possess material things in a way that compromises their relationship to the immaterial stuff that matters most to them. That's what minimalism is. It truly is that simple. It's not about being jealous, nor is it about condemning anyone. It's simply about helping people establish a relationship to stuff that helps them focus on the stuff that matters as they define it. As they define it is the key. Oh, was I at, oh, I was, I thought I was at 60. (laughs) 
the ball was still in your hand when the buzzer hit. <laughs> it's all good. We can't count that shot. It was great, but uh, we, we, we we have to actually, in, in the name of integrity, delete that. And not not even release that to the public. <laughs> not a chance, TK. I love your ramblings. Now, give me 60 seconds. So I'm going to talk to Ask Your Mom. The cost of a thing extends well beyond the price tag. And so I don't care what you own. You can have a Prada bag. You can have Gucci shoes. You can have a Range Rover or a Rolls Royce or a Mercedes Benz or a Lexus. You can have a Tag Heuer watch or a Rolex. You can have a really fancy suit from Brooks Brothers. You can have any of the accoutrements that make you look, quote unquote, successful, Mm. right? I don't care what you own. In fact, if the things that you own enhance your life, I don't want to deprive you of those things. The problem that I have with consumerism is the lie we've been told. Mm. If I buy more things, I will be complete. Your things will never complete you because you are already complete. You were born complete. You're complete now. In fact, the more things you get, they might actually incomplete you. Consumerism is a disease and minimalism is the antidote. Mm. Nice. How, how long was that, Professor? It was exactly a minute. Hey, you know what? Um, since this question came from Ask Your Mom, it just inspired me. I want a new personal segment called Ask Your Mama. And I want to put on, <laughs> you know, Martin Lawrence, the movie Big Mama, Big Mama's House? Oh, yeah. Put on the Big Mama House outfit and the wig. And people send me questions and they direct it to Ask Your Mama. <laughs> and I answer it. <laughs> I'll tune into the private podcast for that. I'm sure that'll be a, a, a segment next week. Private as in I'm doing this by myself without the cameras. <laughs> we'll check in with the Patreon live stream here in a moment. But first, real quick for right here, right now, here's one thing that's going on in the life of the minimalists. So we've got this little side project. It's called Minimalism.com. Minimalism Life is the name of the project. We partnered up with Carl over at Minimalissimo and Alberto at Five Style and then the Minimalists together. In this side project, we bring you the best of minimalist travel, well-being, and design over at Minimalism.com. We just released our second book under this imprint. It's the second in, I think, seven years at this point. And it is called Minimalism Life Volume 2. It's 50 essays about minimalism, about simple living from a bunch of different writers from different backgrounds, including... Our good friend, Professor Sean, he has several essays in that collection. I wrote something for it as well. You can find it over at minimalism.com slash book. We'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. If you want to read more about intentional living, about simple living from a bunch of different perspectives, perspectives that may not always agree with each other either, because there isn't one kind of minimalism. Here's the definition. Here's the template. No, it's different people learning how to live a meaningful life with less. Minimalism.com for the side project over there. Also, once a month with Minimalism Life, I do a little side podcast. They're like three or four minutes each. I read an essay. It's one of my favorite things that I do. Yeah. Very few people listen to it, but I, because we don't ever, I don't do much to promote it, but like, I just read something and I'll talk about that essay that I wrote. And I just, I experience great joy. And it's, I listen to those podcast episodes. I go back and it's almost like I'm writing to myself in a way. Mm. And the podcast helps me more than it probably helps anyone else, or maybe it'll (laughs) help you or support you as well. Minimalism.com. That's our little side project called Minimalism Life. Let's check in with the Patreon live stream, Alabama. 
sure thing. We have a lot of great stuff from the patrons today. Mm. Do we want to talk about direct questions or some ideas on how you connect this thing to not minimalism? We'll get some deeper questions on the private podcast. Right now, let's do uh, connecting a few smaller things. Beautiful. Here's one from Georgia. Connect this. Tire rubber. <laughs> Wait, what does that even mean? How what, what, do you connect that to minimalism? What does tire rubber have to do with minimalism? I don't know. It's a dumb question. What's the next wait, one? Wait, 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 wait. No, <laughs> let, let, let's just play with it. Like like the rubber out, out of which tires are made? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Sure. I, so, so I'm not asking you to do the work for me and tell me what the connection is. I'm just asking like, what are you referring to? Like, are you referring to like, like a, a, the tire on a car? I guess. Sure. I don't know. <laughs> what does tire rubber to have to do with minimalism? Yeah. I mean, the moment you bring in any physical possession, like that's the easiest possible thing that you could give us. Like this, this isn't hard at all. Like, do you ever need to have your tires change? Yes. Like, I had to have mine rotated recently. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. so, uh, I mean, whenever we're talking about the material possessions in our life, the question is, okay, I, well, here's, here's one for you. I moved from Montana to California. In Montana, I had two sets of tires. You have to have snow tires when you live <laughs> in Montana. Otherwise, you run into some problems when there's a lot of snow, right? And so I let go of a whole bunch of rubber. I sold them. Um, and I was able to sell those snow tires to someone. Yeah. I got the money because why? Those things that were adding value to my life weren't adding value to my life at all anymore in California. I didn't need snow tires here. And so I was able to let them go, even though they served a purpose during a, a stage of my life, a chapter of my life. Let's do one more, Alabama, and then we'll save the rest for the private podcast. Here's another one from Taylor, brainstorming. What does that have to do with minimalism? Mm, that's really good. So this is interesting. So I literally just taught a high school class yesterday. And we were doing a brainstorming session and everyone was scared. And after a couple of minutes, because I'm very comfortable with the silence, I don't feel the need to like coach them through it. We sat there for a couple of minutes. Then one person said something and they said it like a question, right? And they, they were like super scared. And I said, that's great. Like, let's work with that. And we put that idea down. And then everyone else started chiming in. And after we went through the brainstorming session, I began to talk with them about James Altucher's idea of exercising your idea muscle. And one of the things I said is, if you can learn to be comfortable with your bad ideas, comfortable with throwing them out there so that you can get critical feedback and collaboration from other people who will help you work on them, you will understand the secret to being able to generate solutions to any problem. But the difficulty with brainstorming is everybody's telling themselves a story that if I suggest an idea that doesn't work, I will be persecuted. I will be laughed at. I will never be taken seriously again. Brainstorming is one of the most difficult things for people to do of all ages. I've seen it in corporate training sessions. I've seen it in college classrooms and high school classrooms because people haven't learned to declutter the story they're telling themselves about how dangerous it is to ever put an idea out there that isn't perfect. We'll check back in with the Patreon live stream here in a bit. But first, Malabama, what do you got for us? Here are some minimalist comments and insights from our listeners. Hi, my name is Stephanie. I'm in Denver, Colorado. I was just calling as a um, a person who has a creative hobby that accumulates a lot of stuff. I really love to crochet, so I have lots of yarn and felt and needles and all sorts of um, all sorts of accoutrement. I think is the word you like with 
with that hobby. And I actually had turned it into a business on Etsy for about a year. And then I decided I, um, that, that that wasn't a good choice for me. Well, now I have all of these items. I have a business size store of these items. And the way I decided to handle that was to, um, liquidate my stock by creating donation items. I'm making little crochet photo props that I'm going to donate to my local hospital. And so it's, it's become a project uh, for me, that will both help me minimize the stock that I have on hand, which are, you know, yarn is something that's kind of hard to um, donate, uh, but it's also given me a way to give back to my community in a what I hope is a meaningful way for families that receive these little items that they can possibly, you know, have photos taken of their children and then maybe donate themselves. So um, I just thought that that was a way for artists to handle the, I have way too many supplies because it really is a just for, oh, excuse me, a just in case item, not a just for when, when you're holding on to tons and tons and tons of craft supplies. My name is uh, Manny Detilas from um, Greenville, Delaware. I love photography and I have a recommendation for any fellow photography lovers, including the instagram kind. So I confess I spent way too much money on DSLR cameras and lenses and equipment, over $1,000. And like many other things, it was a never-ending cycle of lust and desire and upgrading, fueled by all the ads and excitement on the photography online forums and magazines. And I finally realized the problem was not the cameras, it was me. Like you said, it isn't a pen that makes a great writer. So what helped me find peace was using film, like you mentioned, which is why I decided to call in. I actually started using a Fujifilm instant film camera. And the pivotal thing was that each film cartridge holds only 10 shots. So in addition, each shot was roughly 75 cents. So I was forced to become much more intentional with every shot. I would walk around the scene, visualize the best shot from different angles, and only then take a single photo. Also, I quickly found I ended up taking a lot more photos of people I cared about and not of random scenes or parks or sunsets. I think the process revealed my true priorities to me, which was an important surprise. And the other thing is, although each photo was another physical object I had to possess, I found I ended up feeling joy and gratitude each time I tape a new photo of my friends or family on my wall that I can see every day or put it in my car. Uh, you can put it in your wallet. Um, you can also easily give them to other people for them to appreciate too. And I found that people really like this. So I'd recommend checking out an instant film camera if, like me, you were on the digital camera upgrade treadmill and you want to get off. Welcome back to the Minimalist Private Podcast. Let's check in with our Patreon live stream, Alabama. We got any questions for us? Yeah, here's a question from Georgia. She says, Miss you, Ryan. Looking forward to seeing everyone at Sunday Symposium. I'm bringing a friend, but sad that now it's over. Will it really be the last one? She said, no more pictures with Alabama. <laughs> That's so sweet. Yeah, it's the last one for now. I mean, um, this is a beautiful chapter. All these chapters in, and I, I found that We've been creating something really special here. It didn't necessarily go in the direction we thought it might go, but I wasn't tied to any particular outcome. Yep. This is one of those things we do because we desire to do it. 
And will there be other live events at some point in the future? Yeah, of course. Well, probably, right? And and so we'll do more live events. We've been doing live events since 2011. Mm. We just wanted to test this thing out. And so we had four sold-out Sunday symposiums. The next one, which, by the way, by the time this episode comes out, will have already happened. If you want to check out all of those Sunday symposiums, you can still watch them if you're one of the true fan supporters over on Patreon, patreon.com slash The Minimalists. We release all of our live events there. I think there's about 100 live events that we have released. And we've done several hundred live events, but all the ones that we recorded, either audio and or video, we've released them. You can find all of those events over at patreon.com slash The Minimalists. Just click on the tag that says live events. You can see them. You can listen to them as well, as long as you're part of that true, the thousand true fans on Patreon. Another question for us? Yeah, here is one from Adam. I have often found myself attaching to firsts. My first race medal, my first painting, my first portrait taken, a picture of my first dog, etc. Any tips for dealing with things that you were proud of to open space? Hmm. Um, coronate your first time letting go of the first. <laughs> no, you know, um, I, I think one of the, the best ways to let go, and we've talked about this before with the concept of what a funeral symbolizes and why it's such an important part of transition. It's easier to let go when you have ceremonialized what it is you're letting go by having some kind of ritual that allows you to reflect upon what it has meant for you and that allows you to process the feelings that you have around it. So if you've had a first experience and there's some token that you're hanging on to that you want to let go, because it's not intrinsically wrong to hang on to such tokens, but if there's something that's creating clutter in your life, it could be an indication that you haven't sufficiently honored your accomplishment or celebrated what that moment means to you. And this is your only way of remembering. And as Josh said in the documentary, our memories don't live in our things. They live inside us. And so what can you do to commemorate those moments, to gather some people together or to have a special kind of day that you set aside to say, here's where I'm going to show reverence for this. I'm going to reflect on this. I'm going to write something about it or whatever it may be. I think often we don't let go because we're afraid of what might happen, but we don't actually know what might happen. Mm. There's just this underlying blanket anxiety about if I let go of this, I'm incompleting myself, right? And so the first thing I do, because as you said, there's nothing wrong with holding on to it if you feel like you're going to get some sort of value from it. That could be psychological value. It could be a utilitarian value. I'm holding on to this thing because I still use it every day. I'm keeping this coffee cup. Now, just because I use something also isn't a great reason to hold on to it because there could be an alternative that is better for me as well. So just because something is useful and I use it Mm. doesn't mean that it will continue to be useful for me or it's the best use of that item. And sometimes by letting go of something, I realize I'm able to contribute beyond myself because if I'm not getting value from this anymore, maybe someone else can. That's a little bit different for some of these awards and trophies and things like that. And so what I often do is I will hold up the thing that I want to get rid of. When I left the corporate world, I had several of these giant President's Club awards. They look like weapons. They're made out of these crystal. They're expensive. They're kind of tacky, to be honest with you. Like They certainly didn't match my decor in any way. But letting go of them, I said, okay, what am I actually afraid of here? Because I told myself, I don't want to let go of this. Mm. 
What am I afraid of? Yeah. Well, I'm afraid I won't be accepted. I'm afraid of loss. What am I actually losing? And you get to the why, then you get to the why behind the why. And as soon as you realize like, oh, I'm holding on to this because I think it's impressive to other people. Okay, why do I want to impress other people? Because then they'll like me. Okay, is this the only way I can get people to like me is through a trophy? And if so, are those the types of people I actually want to spend my time with? And as soon as you get to the why, and then the why, and the why, you act like a 10-year-old boy. Why, mom? Why, 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 why? And you batter yourself with the whys. You start to realize, this thing, I've been giving it way more weight than it's actually worth. Yeah. You know, I... I, um. I had a conversation with a friend who said to me that, you know, he works with celebrities, but he also is is an aspiring entertainer himself. And he had the opportunity to meet Jay-Z. Shout out to Curtis Carmichael III. He had a chance to meet Jay-Z. And there were a bunch of people who were like begging Jay-Z for his autograph. And he was like working alongside him. And he said he had to exercise some self-control, but he says, I'm not going to ask Jay-Z for his autograph. And I says, well, why is that? He says, because the moment I do that, I'm solidifying in my consciousness an identification of myself with a fan. And I'm making this moment something that's rare and special and unrepeatable. And I want to live my life in such a way that meeting one of my heroes is normal. Working with a great artist is normal. And so I'm not going to venerate this moment because I want to normalize it and send a signal to myself that says, hey, This is the space in which I work. This is how I live my life. And so sometimes when we when we have certain things that we do for the first time, we we haven't quite integrated into our consciousness the fact that this is where we are. Mm -hmm. I believe it was the professional baseball player, Ricky Henderson, who um, his first check was for a million dollars and he grew up poor and he didn't cash it and he had it framed. And he had it, it was a real check and he had it for like several months. And the GM of like the Oakland A's says, Ricky, you got to cash that check, man. He's like, if this is that big of a deal for you, I will send you a fake check, but I need you to cash that check. But he was so accustomed to not having any money Uh that he had to hang on to that first. But once he got to a point where he was like, this is where I'm at now, man. I'm a millionaire. I get paid to do what I love. I don't, I don't need the frame check anymore because I'm not that kid anymore who finds that to be so distant. I can let that go and I can now hang on to the fact that I don't need to celebrate the first when I know for sure that it's not the only. This is what pride does to us. This is when pride becomes pride clutter, Mm -hmm. right? Because it says, I'm afraid I can never do that again. Yeah. And as soon as you have that fear, then you start clinging. You cling to the autograph from Jay-Z or you cling to the check yeah. from the Oakland A's. A few weeks ago, you and I met Ye, the artist formerly known as, as Kanye West. And um, it'd be easy in that moment to be like, oh, I love your music. And, I love, and, and, and all of a sudden, we become the role of the fan, which is nothing wrong with being a fan. I'm yeah. certainly a fan of yeah. his music. And uh, many of the things he's created is, is just these artistic masterpieces, right? But... I also want to be in a position where I can have a conversation with him. And so I first thing I did is I went up and gave him a big hug and he almost seemed like skeptical at first. <laughs> it was just him and his wife. They're at, at our studio here, not in the studio, but downstairs. And uh, they work with a, a few friends of ours. And we started to have a, a conversation. He's like, oh, you're the minimalist guy. My wife was telling me about you yeah. because she had seen our documentary. Yeah. 
tell me what it's about. And I didn't want to step on his time, but I also wanted to have a, a brief conversation about it. So mm-hmm. we talked briefly about what minimalism is and and how we approach minimalism. And and you were there and we, we gave some hugs, but it wasn't about clinging to the moment. And it'd be mm-hmm. easy to cling to a moment like that. But it was about being there in the moment, being attentive to the moment, but then also letting it go. Because what happens if I were to hold on to that moment? If that's my high achievement, mm. then I actually wasn't present for the moment that I'm holding on to in the first place. That's it. And, and, you, and you experience this a lot in a city like LA where it's not all that crazy to be in a Starbucks and like, whoa, there's Alicia Keys, mm-hmm. right? You, you can have that kind of experience. And there's something about maintaining your composure respecting that other person's space that allows you to walk away from that situation feeling so much better about yourself. I treated that moment of seeing someone who is in this exalted position, I treated that situation as if, yeah, this is life. Mm -hmm. They drink Starbucks too. Yes. I saw them in the store. Yeah. I didn't hound them. I didn't harass them. I didn't have a meltdown. It's just life. And sometimes that happens. Sometimes you see a celebrity. That's cool. That's neat. It's a good story. But I don't have to do anything with that. And it does something for your self-esteem. It does something for your sense of self-worth because you're treating yourself as someone who is worthy of moments that are interesting, unique, special things that would make for a really good story, but you don't have to cling to them and attach attach yourself to them and lock them down mm-hmm. in a way as if, you know, only every once in a while will something like this happen to me. You know, special things happen every day. This was the particular manifestation for today. There'll be something even more special tomorrow, just in a different way, because that's how life works for you. Yeah. And yeah. when you can, when you have a sensitivity to it, you can see the specialness in the ordinary. You can see the extraordinary in the ordinary because fundamentally it's so extraordinary that we're here and we get to witness it anyway. And if I needed to get something out of yay, then it would have made that interaction less meaningful. I'm sure I could have gotten some, I could have pitched him on some idea or whatever. But then all of a sudden I'm becoming so outcome focused that my desire is attached to that outcome Mm. as opposed to the desire of witnessing what's going on right here. And we got to talk to him about minimalism and I don't know if anything will ever transpire from that, but it doesn't matter if it does. If it does, great. If not, great. My life is awesome. And it's because I'm not attached to the outcome there. And you bring up a good point about being in LA. I mean, I tend to get recognized quite a bit because of our, our films. And I always love getting recognized by people who are loving and caring. We can hug it out. We can have a brief conversation. I think about the Louis C.K. story when someone comes up to him in an airport. Now, he's famous, famous. And people come to an airport and say, can I get a photo with you? And he'll say, no, but I'll talk to you for five minutes. He said, you wouldn't believe how many people don't take me up on that. Oh, no, thanks, Mr. Spielberg. I don't care about (laughs) your movies. I just wanted an opportunity to show my friends that I met you. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm not interested in you. I'm interested in flexing. (laughs) And that ruins the moment. Mm. But I love when someone comes up to me in a coffee shop and we have a quick hug and a 30-second, 60-second brief conversation about something. And then we keep it moving. We don't cling to the moment. But some of the most meaningful interactions I'll have is because someone 
had some sort of, they were influenced or, or affected by something that we created. And they'll just take a moment to recognize that. And I get to recognize them and honor them for their appreciation. What a beautiful exchange that is. Yeah. But by the way, this hap- this is especially true for like things that are, 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 are uh, that pertain to like creative energy. So l- let's take writing or, or making art. The more attached you are to like that one poem you wrote, that one article, that one essay or, or one song you wrote, the more scarce you are with your ideas. Oh, I got to hang on to this one because somebody could steal it. Or once I let it out there, it's over. And that's the only thing that I'll do. The, the fewer ideas you actually have. But the more liberal, the more generous you are with your creative output, like I'm going to put it out there. I'm going to put it out there. It's like the more you get. When I first started writing, I experienced this. It's like the the less precious I was about my writing and the more I wrote, it's like the more space there was in my mind to receive ideas. But the more clingy I was, oh, I can't let this out because this is all I ever write. It's like it dries up. And so in a similar way, when you treat good experiences as if this is the best thing that's ever going to happen to me, then that probably will be the best thing that's ever happened to you. But if you approach it with a sense of abundance and say, hey, interesting, cool first happen to me all the time and I'm going to live like that, then you can stop clinging to some interesting first in your life and what becomes available to you in that space of no longer clinging to an interesting thing from your past. There are interesting possibilities for the future that now become visible. I think about the most popular thing we've ever done. It was our first documentary, Minimalism, a documentary about the important things. Yeah. And that was unintentional. That was our most popular thing. In fact, we got so many no's on that. Agents told us no. (laughs) Streamers told us no. Theaters told us no. People told us no, Mm. no, no, no. And so it's easy to get discouraged there if you need a particular outcome. Our outcome, though, was let's film a documentary. It wasn't even let's make a documentary. We knew that we would go out with Matt and there was a pretty good chance we weren't even going to get the footage we needed to make an actual documentary. (laughs) Let's try this out. The desire was, let's go out there while we're on tour and film something. We'll interview some people along the way. When we got home, we had over a thousand hours worth of footage and we boiled it down to 79 minutes. Matt Diavella is a genius when it comes to to editing. By the way, you can still check out the film over at minimalismfilm.com. We just uh, got the rights back from Netflix. It's going to have a new home soon, but we're, uh, we're just teasing that right now. You'll yeah. see where in the not too distant future. But um, when we put the film out there, it resonated with a lot of people and they started to share it. And if I needed that to happen, exactly how it happened, then it would have just met my standard. If I needed to get 80 million views, which it did, 80 million people saw, so it even got more than 80 million views, 80 million people saw this film, Mm -hmm. that's spectacular. But let's say I needed 90 million people to see it. Well, now I failed. And now I'm a failure. Because I had a particular expectation around that. Can you elaborate on on this, this feeling of of needing more and tying our our happiness to it. Yeah, expectations have the power to render beautiful things ugly in the eyes of the person who has the expectation. So let's say I owe you nothing and I choose to give you a $10 Starbucks gift card as a gesture of kindness because I appreciate you. Even though you don't drink Starbucks, neither does Alicia Keys, by the way. I don't want her responding to me on Twitter being like, you ain't never seen me in no Starbucks. Uh, <laughs> you, you would appreciate 
the act of kindness. And you'd be like, man, this is a good dude. I appreciate that. That's right. On the other hand, let's say I owe you $100. We haven't talked about it. I haven't said anything about giving you your money back. But then I give you a $10 Starbucks gift card. That's going to look confusing. That's going to be kind of insulting. Like, uh, dude, don't you understand that you owe me money? Like, what the heck are you doing giving me a Starbucks gift card? I was generous in that second instance, but within the context of an expectation that wanted more, my act of generosity is experienced as an insult. And so many times in life, because we expect things of other people, we expect things of ourselves, we are rewarded with so many beautiful experiences and we reject them as ugly because we're focused on someone on social media that's got more followers than us and is getting more attention than us. And we say, I don't care about these 10 people who took the time to tell me that they love me, who took the time to tell me that I changed their lives, who took the time to tell me that they like my song or they like my art. You don't matter to me, 10 people, because you're not 1 million. And here you have something that most people have never experienced. Yeah. 10 people telling you you've made a difference in their lives with your art, with your music, with your comedy, with your writing. What an amazing gift. But it's an insult if you're expecting 100 and you define that as success. And yet we spend all of our time forsaking the things that are beautiful in our life, like those 10 people or or whatever, as opposed to focusing on that beautiful aspect, Mm -hmm. finding the extraordinary in the ordinary. And then what do we do? We say, we look outward. I mean, I think about our podcast here, right? The public version, which you're not listening to right now, you're listening to the, the private version. The public version is a radically stripped down version of the maximal episode. It's usually about 30 minutes or so. And the private podcast is two or three hours sometimes, right? And yet what we're doing is we're focusing and appreciating the few thousand people who support the private podcast as opposed to, and we're not forsaking the millions of people who listen to the public podcast. We create something for them. We're grateful for that, but I'm really appreciative of the people who make this possible. Yeah. The people who keep this podcast hundred percent advertisement free. So we don't have to do ads. We're not shilling for a corporation. They pay Jordan and Sean and Sean and Jess and Alabama and Danny and everyone else on the team. And they allow us to do that. And so I can appreciate that without needing this podcast to reach a million people, two million people, or whatever it might be, because I don't define success that way. Yeah, I don't think success actually exists in the traditional sense, because success, we think, is going to bring us happiness. But if we don't know what we want, you'll never get enough. And so it's more, 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 until I've heaped everything onto me. I've made no room for more because I've just gotten more. I've gotten more accolades. I've gotten more likes. I've gotten more stuff. But I've gotten all the things that come along with that. And so letting go doesn't just have to let, have to, it doesn't have to do with letting go of the stuff or letting go of the trophies. It has to do with letting go of the expectations. I expected these things to make me happy. I expected these achievements to make me happy. But I'm happy regardless of whether or not I have them. I think it's important to understand. I want to talk to you about our talk aboutable segment. We um, actually, you know what? Let's save this one for next week. 
when Ryan is back. The uh, I'm going to talk about never buying anything ever again from an Instagram ad. So stay tuned mm. for next week. <laughs> I'm going to call an audible on this one, TK, because I wanted to talk to... I want to talk to Marcy about this. I didn't get a chance earlier when we listened to Marcy's question. Marcy from Prescott, Arizona. And so for today's Talk Aboutable segment, I have a tweet thread from our good friend, Dr. Nicole LaPera. She's the at the holistic psych on Twitter. And this is a Twitter thread from her, a tweet storm, one might call it. And here's what she had to say. And I'd love to unpack this together. You're slowly leaving survival mode. Here's what to expect. We enter survival mode for many reasons. We're overworked, exhausted, unable to cope, and disconnected from our own bodies. So we go through life on autopilot. Inevitably, one day we hit an emotional rock bottom, a point where we just can't go on anymore with life as we know it. This is the beginning of leaving survival mode. We start to wake up. We look at our relationships, who we spend time with, our work and how it impacts ourselves and the world, what we want in our life, our true values, how our childhood impacts who we are today. At first, it's overwhelming. I know I sobbed on my kitchen floor many times. We start to practice self-care, establish routines, and sometimes, for the first time in our lives, we set boundaries. Oh, love that. Suddenly, we don't fit into society. The dysfunction has become crystal clear, and we're no longer willing to participate. Our confidence builds. We restore our self-trust. Relationships start to shift. Some relationships end. We're making space. We're making room for new people and new experiences in our lives. Sounds like she's talking about minimalism. Our nervous system is adapting. Our thought patterns are shifting. We have glimmers of hope, of belonging, and of connection, sometimes for the first time in decades. Instead of people-pleasing, we're respecting ourselves. We're making choices in our own best interest instead of people-pleasing. That's why I thought it fit with Marcy's question really well, because you were talking earlier, TK, about once you're free from pleasing all the people, you're free from needing all the things, needing the praise, needing the veneration, needing the adulation. She goes on to say, we are choosing ourselves. It's not an easy, easy journey, and it's worth it. Who's on this journey? And I found that Many people who call into our podcast or listen to the podcast, they are on some iteration of this journey, leaving survival mode, mm. because you don't thrive in survival mode. You survive. You make do with what you have, but also you begin to realize, as she illustrates here, I've been living my life on autopilot, and I've never stopped to look at my relationships. Who am I spending time with? I don't look at my work how I contribute creatively to the world. I don't look at what my values are. By the way, we have a values worksheet over at theminimalists.com slash V. And so many people, tens of thousands of people have just printed this out. It's a one pager and you get to identify what your values are. And for the longest time, 30 something years, I never sat back and said, what do I actually value? Because the truth is, however I spend my 24 hours, that's what I value. If I spend 16 hours playing video games today, 
Okay, fine, if that's what I truly value. But is this actually getting in the way of what I value? And what she says, it's, it's overwhelming at first. But then we start to practice self-care, establish routines. And sometimes for the first time in our lives, we've never set a boundary. And no, of course, when you start to withdraw from the normal template of society, you may not fit in as well. But I don't value fitting in anymore either. Yeah. I used to value fitting in. There's this line in American Psycho, the, <clears throat> the film, and also the book, but where he takes his headphones off, Patrick Bateman does, and his wife's like, what do you actually want? He just looks at her and he goes, I want to fit in. What a terrible, terrible value to have. Because what do you get out of that? Okay, so you fit in. So what? And then ironically, we also want to fit in, but then what else do we want? We want to stand out. And so I want to fit in, but I also want to stand out. And of course that makes us miserable and we lose confidence. We don't trust ourselves and our relationships aren't the relationships we actually want in our lives. And so when she says our relationships start to shift, some relationships end. That's just a natural part of maturing, of beginning to not fit in, right? Of not people pleasing. That's why I thought it was so perfect for Marcy's question, because when she says, well, instead of people pleasing, we respect ourselves. Mm. Because people pleasing Mm. at your own expense means you're not respecting yourself. Yeah. Fitting in. Imagine if I'm standing outside, I'm waiting for a ride, and a random car pulls up, and the passenger door swings open, and someone from inside the car says, hop in. And I look in the car to see if I recognize anybody, and I see like 10 people packed into this car, and I look confused, and the person says, hop in, fit in. My question's going to be, who the hell are you, and where are you going? What am I fitting into? We strive so hard to fit in, but what group are you trying to fit into? Who the hell are these people and where are they going to take you? Fitting in is not an intrinsic good. Are you fitting into a prison or are you trying to fight your way into a paradise? What are you fitting into and what is that going to do to your life? But one of the hardest things about life, man, Sometimes our hero's journey leads us through places and spaces that simply require us to be a loser mm. or an irresponsible person yes. or an immature person in the eyes of other people. Mm. Because there are so many unquestioned cultural orthodoxies, stories we tell ourselves about what we have to do, what we have to participate in, games that we have to play in order to not be destroyed, in order to not burn bridges. Well, everybody participates in the gift grab. Everybody plays golf with the CEO. Everybody gives up their weekends for this or that. And who wants to be abnormal in the eyes of those people? But the question you got to ask yourself is, Do you want to spend your life chasing around concepts of happiness and success that you don't even believe in? Do you want to spend all of your energy being normal in the eyes of people that never seem free to you? Or do you want to be free according to what you think, what you feel, and what you believe? You know, you said a little bit ago how whatever you choose to do with your time, that's what you value. And so if you spend all your day playing video games, that's what you value. I think one layer to that is 
it's either what we value or it might be a case of mimetic desire. Or it might be a case that I have internalized a certain set of cultural values that I've never questioned and I'm chasing after ideals and values that I never stop to consider. That's right. You know? Yeah. And so this is a question I asked early on. Do you want to spend your life chasing stuff? And from that, a bunch of other questions appeared. Do you want to spend your life chasing status? By the way, there's not a right or wrong answer. This is not a moral question in the sense that the answer is obvious. No, the answer isn't obvious. In fact, for most of us, it's yes, I want to spend my life chasing stuff. And if that is true, and that is what you find value in, I have no judgment for you, right? But I knew for me, it wasn't doing what it was supposed to do. The business title, the the job title at my business wasn't doing what it was supposed to do. Mm. The success in my life wasn't doing what it was supposed to do. Mm. The money even wasn't doing what it was supposed to do. In fact, all of these things were doing the opposite. I made really good money, but had tremendous debt. And so clearly the money wasn't giving me financial freedom. It was giving me the ability to go into further into debt. And so I had half a million dollars worth of debt. It wasn't doing what it was supposed to do. To, to, to do. And I was chasing money. I was chasing success. I was chasing, chasing material possessions. I was chasing the accoutrements, the stuff and, and, and all of the things that I thought I wanted, but they were what? Mimetic desires. In fact, most of the things we want aren't actually things that we want. These are things that other people think they want and therefore we think we want them as well. Hmm. Let's jump into... Um, we're going to skip TK's tweet of the week this week because I want to have a long conversation with you about this one. Let's move on to, we have a voicemail from Joan. She has a sucky ad for us. I'm Joan from Pittsburgh, California, and I've been a Patreon member for several years. Recently, speaking of advertisements suck, my husband and I were trying to locate a home within the city we've lived in for 22 years. Turned on Google Maps and it had us exit in a place that seemed way too far away from the home in which we were very clear, the housing complex in which this house was. We were going to deliver something to them, by the way, something we were giving away and letting go. It had us get off on the exit, and I finally realized upon it telling us to turn right at the next corner where Subway was located. They actually mentioned Subway several times so that you knew to turn right, not on that street that they would name specifically, but an actual retail store. I had never heard this before on Google Maps, nor had I ever been directed to get off way earlier than necessary to go a different route to ensure that that retail store got its notification that you noticed Subway on that corner and in that area. Talk about advertising taking over everything even Google Maps. Joan, you bring up a really good point because what happens, we've conditioned ourselves to expect things for free. Every social media platform is free. Every event that we go to is free. Google Maps is free. These apps are free. My music is next to free, right? Free, 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 free. But of course, these things aren't free. They cost tremendous amounts of money. Google Maps cost hundreds of millions of dollars over the years to develop. It's an incredibly expensive 
application. In fact, it might be the most expensive app there is, and yet it's free for you? Okay, well, that means it's not the product you are, Joan. You're the product, and Mm. now they're using you to sell to. And this is especially dangerous because not only is it just showing you the advertisement for Subway, that's one thing, but it's actually rerouting you to drive past their advertisers. And so this is immersive advertising where it has the opportunity to change your behavior because you're so dependent on this free product. This is why whenever I get the opportunity, two things I do. One is I pay for the version that is advertisement free. I pay for the product so that I am not the product. Some of my favorite podcasts, I do that. I'll support them on Patreon or if they have a subscription service and I get that version of their podcast ad free. I'm also supporting the creator directly. And the same is true with Netflix, let's say. I have the non-ad version, the ad-free version of Netflix so that I don't get interrupted by advertising. So whenever it's feasible, that is what I will do. I will also, the second thing I do is I will make sure I avoid becoming dependent Mm. on any of these applications, right? Because if you become so dependent on GPS that they can now direct where you're going, you've lost any semblance of free will that you may have had here, right? Uh, Even the idea of free will is is gone. Someone else is now directing you where you should go, when you should turn, what stores you should shop at, right? And so when we become dependent on any application, Hmm. they are now in the driver's seat. You're not. Yeah. I'm going to go. You said you want to have a long conversation on this. So I'm going to go a very roundabout way to engage this topic. I'm going to give you my brief argument for peaceful parenting for a non-spanking approach to child discipline. No one, no one who loves their child dreams of spanking their children. There is no one who loves their child who considers it to be the ideal. Everyone who spanks their child subscribes to a notion that at some point we will get beyond spanking. At some point, I will be able to discipline you in other ways that don't require it. For now, I might have to spank you because you don't respond to reason, but I don't dream of a day when you're 15 and 16, 17, and I'm still spanking you because if that's what's happening, something's wrong. I hope to get to a point where we can sit down and have a reasonable conversation. The argument for spanking is not that it's good, that it's ideal, that I like it, or that it fulfills my dreams. The argument for it is I can't imagine a life without it when I have to discipline a child that doesn't seem to be responsive to reasoning. So the real need, the real question to ask then is, is there room for us to be more creative, more intentional in finding ways to discipline our children that doesn't require spanking? Since the ideal is what we want anyway, can we get the ideal earlier? Can we never depart from the ideal? I think that's analogous to how people reason about advertising. I hear people defend it all the time, but I've never heard anybody say, I dream of plastering Tropicana and Nike ads all over my content. I never heard anybody say that it is my ideal. In fact, when they criticize you, 
They even say things like, hey, in an ideal world, we'd all just put out our content without the ads. They all share the same presuppositions about what the ideal is. But people take ads not because they love them. They take ads because it's perceived to be necessary and we can't imagine a life without them. And so if that's true, and we all share the same ideal, the ideal of one day being content creators, being artists who are free to say what we really think, put out what we really want to put out, and never talk about anybody else's product unless we're naturally inspired to do so, perhaps that means there's room to have conversations about how can we be more creative and more intentional to figure out a way to serve the people who love our work and be rewarded for our creative value without depending on that stuff. And it is my hope that micropayments and the development of micropayment systems will introduce innovative subscription models that will eliminate this. And one day people will look at ads and this modern day custom we have of plastering banners all over our stuff, not as some immoral, unethical thing, but they'll look at it in the same vein as like, oh, one day people used to push those wheelbarrows around. That's right. You know, one day people needed the donkey to get around. And I think that the thing about advertisements, that the advertising model made a whole lot more sense when we were delivering these shows, whether it's a radio show, TV show, or whatever, via mediums that didn't lend themselves to any sort of subscription whatsoever. And so they had to be supplemented with supplemented with advertisements. Otherwise, you couldn't you couldn't get the revenue necessary to create the things that people would find value in. Mm-hmm. That is not the case anymore because we've lowered the barrier of entry so much that we don't need them now. You can choose to do ads. And I think some people do ads relatively well. I think about the whole Ramsey Solutions team. And if anyone, if I could pick one person who I think does ads well, I still don't want to do ads to be clear, but they do ads that align with their values. Mm -hmm. And generally, it's usually companies they've partnered with. So they have some sort of ownership stake in it. So one could even make an argument that those aren't necessarily advertisements if they they own it. When I talk about a book on our podcast that we wrote, it's not an advertisement. It's just a promotion for the book. And it's different because no one else, no third party is paying me to advertise on their behalf. Where it gets tricky with the Google thing, and I'm not against Google, I'm not against Google Maps. I wish I had the option, however, to pay them $5 a month so that I could guarantee they would never serve me an ad and they, they would never reroute me to take me past one of their advertisers. And because I don't want to be manipulated that way. This is the perfect illustration of how advertisements can literally manipulate you. Usually we're talking about manipulation in the figurative sense. You're being manipulated psychologically, but here you're being manipulated physically. You have to drive past our advertisers. In fact, we might even make you go out of your way. You're going to spend not just your time and your attention, but you're going to spend your your energy all of these other resources driving past. And then you start navigating, okay, what am I being advertised to? Now I have to filter this out. I have to start saying no to this advertisement because, oh, I feel like eating Subway. So why do I feel like eating Subway? Well, maybe it's because they made you drive past four of them on your way to work today. Yeah, and I have no problem with them capitalizing on the intuitive aspect of that which we already see in 
everyday communication. You're telling me how to get somewhere and you're like, go to Fifth Street. There's going to be an Outback Steakhouse like on the left corner, turn left there. Sometimes it's easier to recognize, oh yeah, there's the DMV that he mentioned. There's the McDonald's that he mentioned. It's easy to recognize landmarks. And if you want to put in parentheses, you know, turn left at Fifth Street, McDonald's on the corner. All right. And, and, And if you can get McDonald's to pay you for that, you know, have at it, you know, more opportunity to you. But once you're introducing an extra two to three miles for my, for my 10 mile trip, then, you know, just to take me past the McDonald's, now you're incentivizing competition to come in and to serve me in a way that's more efficient and isn't compromised in that way. Yeah. I think you'd also make the argument that something like a McDonald's or a Subway is also harmful to people. And Mm. we don't think about it in, in that respect, but if we said, turn left at the 7-Eleven where you can buy Marlboro cigarettes today for eleven ninety nine or whatever it is, right? You'd be like, I don't turn this Google off immediately, right? Because we know the implications of smoking, right? And most of us know that fast food is not the healthiest food for us, but we just say, oh, I have to deal with it. It's, it's convenient, so it's worthwhile, right? But on a long enough timeline, those things are making us pretty sick. I, I shared a photo on my personal Instagram the other day. It was a pack of Marlboros, but it had just had French fries coming out of the top of it. Uh, and, you know, so like fast food is the new smoking for many of us. Sitting yeah. is the new smoking. Scrolling is the new smoking. Yep. Convenience is the new smoking for us. Mm-hmm. We got to be careful with our applications when they become so convenient that we are now dependent on them even for our wayfinding, that becomes a problem. Hey, man, is the Google empire falling? I mean, is the Google empire falling with like the chat BT, chat GPT technology? Yeah, I don't know. I, I, that's interesting. I doubt it because yeah. they, they own so much of search. You know, over 90% of search is done on Google. But, it, but aren't they being undermined by like slow integration of that or competitors integrating that technology? Certainly. I think on a long enough timeline, it's all ephemeral anyway. I, mm. I don't see it in the, in the near future. But yeah, over the course of the next few decades, no one can hold on forever, right? Can I have one minute to hear what the professor thinks? Yeah, for sure. Uh, the only relevant thing I have to say is that Google just made their own AI bard available today. So mm. we'll see. Mm. I hear it's not nearly as good as OpenAI's or Microsoft's. <laughs> but right. I right. haven't used it. Yeah, and the the key to that is it may not be as good yet, right? But given the resources that a company, the infinite resources that a company like Google has, mm-hmm. yet could mean in six months it could overtake it, right? Mm. And so... I think we have to think about, yes, it's not as good yet, but they don't want to lose their market share. And so they will do things Mm. to make sure that if they see, we see this with social media now, Instagram just becomes whatever app is popular. It was, it took over Snapchat, like, oh, Snapchat's taken away, so we do Instagram stories, right? Uh, YouTube's going off, so we do IGTV and TikTok's taken off, so now we have Reels, right? And so... Instagram, the platform that was meant for sharing photos, very few people get any sort of engagement on photos now because everyone is sharing reels. They're they're competing with TikTok and they can do so because they have this existing user base. And next week, I'm going to talk to you about 
why we don't want to buy anything from an Instagram ad. But I want to turn over to Alabama because we have a minimalist home tour. This is minimalist home tour number 31. I'm calling this one setting the stage. What does Rachel have to say? We'll put a picture up here on the screen so you can see it as well. Rachel says, in response to your podcast this week, I am submitting a picture of my living room. We are fortunate that our living space is on the second floor, so the view is a little better. Thank you for the request to share our homes with you. I think it's a fun way to get different perspectives on minimalism. Rachel, brava. This uh, living room is beautiful. I mean, what you did here is you took a rather conventional living room. I'm looking at it now. There's a couch. There's a side chair, there's a coffee table, there's a credenza or a media console with a TV, there's a piece of artwork, there are some windows here with some window shades, and that's it. What you've done is you kept all of the main functional pieces of furniture in your room, but you made the room more beautiful. How? Not by adding, but through subtracting. And that's really the spirit of minimalism. It's certainly the spirit of this minimalist home tour segment. It's not about living in a monastery. It's not about living with nothing. It's not about moving into an empty apartment with just your yoga mat, and now you have everything you need. I don't see you depriving yourself here. In fact, what you've done, as we've been talking about all episode today, TK, You've made room for more, not more stuff. Obviously, you have room for more stuff. If you wanted to fill this room up with more stuff, then you would actually be making room for less. Fewer experiences, fewer meaningful experiences. Uh, you, You would just have less time, less attention. You'd be cluttering your space with more. This is a clutter free space, but it's not a space with nothing in it. And I think that's an important distinction. You've made room for more but not more stuff. Yeah, I I love the natural lighting in that room. I just love that window, the way the lighting pops. I was going to say window itch, and then I I saw Sean, Professor, in in my head going, you are a needless variant. But... um, I, I love it. I love it. It's beautiful. I love the natural lighting. And and by the way, you know, um, you and I had a conversation with a mutual friend about this and how like the the architectural spaces, like the way things are designed, the way things are are lit, that it affects your mood. It affects what you want to do in that room. When I imagine myself walking into that room, I, I can't help but do like the the uh, the uh, the boy band spin because it just feels so free and like makes me want to dance. <laughs> it gives very happy vibes, Rachel. <laughs> I feel like you could move the coffee table. You've got a whole dance floor here <laughs> in a relatively small living room. And that's what I like about simple spaces too. Quite often we get a big room or a big house or house that just seems like, oh, I need to fill the space immediately. Mm-hmm. Just because we have the space, we feel compelled to fill it. If you go back to previous home tours over at patreon.com slash The Minimalist, some tours of, of my home, you look at my bedroom. We have the biggest bedroom I've ever had before. And my inclination at first was what? To fill it so that it felt full. I didn't want it to feel empty because then I feel empty. Mm. But the opposite is true. Every day in the middle mm. of my workday, what I do is I go into the bedroom. I have this huge dance floor in our in our uh, bedroom. I don't dance, but I put up the yoga mat out and I'll just do some regular Agoscu stretching throughout the day. And I have the space to do that. I don't have to move anything out of the way. I don't have to worry about the things I need to clean off and dust off. By having fewer things, I have fewer things to take care of. And that's obviously what Rachel has shown with her 
space here with her living room. You can email us your photos of your home. Just send us one or two photos, podcast at theminimalists.com. We'll feature them on an upcoming episode. Also, if you have a sucky ad for us, send us a voice memo to podcast at theminimalists.com as well. Let's check back in with the Patreon live stream, Alabama. What do you got for us? Here's a thought from Amy. What does exercise have to do with minimalism? Sometimes less is more, but for me, less sometimes turns into not doing it at all. Ah, yes, yes. So we often conflate, TK, doing nothing with minimalism, subtracting everything with minimalism. If I subtract all my exercise out, that is the best. Minimalism is the middle path in many respects. It allows Mm. us to get down to the essentials and to the non-essentials that add value to our lives. And so the question is, what exercise is essential for you? And what exercise adds value to your life? No, you may not have to go to the gym two hours a day every day. In fact, when we had Dr. Saladino on the podcast, he was talking about how we can fill our lives with exercise clutter. We're often exercising ourselves into dis-ease and to dysfunction. We're constantly hurting ourselves by overexerting ourselves Mm -hmm. and doing these crazy CrossFit workouts. Not to say that you can't do those things, but it may not be appropriate for you. So the question that I often ask myself is, what is appropriate here for me? I work out 18 minutes a day every day. I do these body weight exercise, push-ups, pull-ups, and squats. We'll put a link to my 18-minute minimalist exercise routine in the show notes as well. So you can take a look at it. But I do that because everyone has 18 minutes a day, or at least I know I can find 18 minutes in any day to exercise. It's not overwhelming. I don't have to worry about packing a bag and going to the gym. I don't have to worry about the drive anywhere. And I don't have to worry about all this additional equipment and, and hoarding equipment in order to exercise. I can exercise every day. I was talking to Dave Ramsey this week and, uh, You know, every morning he gets up at 5 a.m. and walks at least one mile. Every day, Mm. he and his wife go out on a walk and they walk at least one mile. He said, usually that turns into two or three miles or sometimes for his wife, Sharon, six or seven miles. And so I supplement my days with walking as well. That is the most minimalist exercise. And I get tremendous value from that. And I don't ever feel like I have to do it. I feel like I get to do it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. there, there was an interesting line in, in, in this question where like sometimes for me, less becomes not doing at all. And I, I think there's an important distinction here. There, there's a difference between doing less as a strategy for avoiding discomfort and doing less as a strategy for building momentum. Yes. Which is why that minimalistic question of how can my life be better with less necessarily involves the better part. Like I'm using less as a means to more, except I'm shifting my more from just unqualified stuff to high quality stuff. And so if if you're approaching less when it comes to exercise in the sense of like, I already don't like working out. I already don't like the exercises that I do. This is already a pain in the neck. So I'm just going to take it easy on myself. And you know, demand that I do it less. Well, there's a discomfort there that's not being confronted and sufficiently unpacked. And as a result of that, there's an attempt to run away from it and to use less as a way of putting off the process of unpacking the clutter I have around what it is I want to do. But on the other hand, if you say, I'm going to find a way of exercising that I actually enjoy, 
because I'm not exercising to impress other people. I'm not exercising for Instagram. I'm exercising for me and the results I care about. So what fits with my personality type and my rhythm for living? And then once I found that, I'm going to use less as a strategy for building momentum by saying, instead of demanding an hour of myself every day, I'm going to only demand 15 minutes of my day because then I can do it more. I can do it every day instead of only doing it on the days where everything works out. Right. And then we stop negotiating with ourselves as well. Yeah. I found for me, like there is, there are some days where I really do feel like, ah, this is going to be great. I can't wait to exercise. Yeah. But then there are some days where it's like, oh, really, do I have to? Yep. And if I had an hour ahead of me, it'd be easy for me to talk myself out of it. If I had two hours ahead of me and I have to drive, I add all of these additional layers of complexity. It's easy to talk myself out of it. But if it's like, yeah, you guess what? You've got 18 minutes. Yeah. And we're just going to do this. You don't get to negotiate here, Josh. It is what it is. You're going to spend the next 18 minutes doing this. And I guarantee, I know you feel the resistance now, but I guarantee 18 minutes from now, you're going to be really grateful you took that first step. That's right. Let's move on to our more about less segment. We'll read some more about less. I have two articles here. I'm just going to read one today. I want to save this one for next week, Alabama. This one is from... Our friend, Dr. Christopher Ryan, he wrote the book Sex at Dawn, and he has a great substack. And this one is about sexual monogamy versus libido. And I tell you, last week's episode with Aubrey Marcus really made me rethink a lot about monogamy, non-monogamy, and and I really appreciated how he is an advocate for monogamy in Mm. such a way that I didn't feel like he was trying to convince anyone of anything, and yet... I felt convinced by his perspective. And so I see my mind changing in real time uh, about a topic that I was fairly convinced in a a separate direction. And now I found that my perspective is a bit more nuanced. And I thought this article would really really amplify what we were talking about. So let's, Malabama, we'll save this for next week when Ryan is back. We'll have a, a beautiful conversation about that. Or maybe it'll be two weeks from now. I'm not really sure. But we'll, we'll definitely get back to that because as my mind is, is solidifying in different ways, I always love bringing in a radically different perspective because if I don't do that, then I'm just clinging to whatever, whatever opinion that I might have. Hmm. And I do my best not to have an opinion on this show at all. I like to figure out what is the truth and how is that truth applicable to me? And then of course, yes, of course I have opinions about things. TK has opinions about things. But as Kapil Gupta says, you, your opinion is, is essentially worthless. What is the truth? But today's more about last segment. Podcast Sean sent this to us. And um, man, this is, this is disconcerting, but maybe we can figure out why this is happening, TK. Censoring art without the artist's permission. And he gave me links to a few different articles, one from the National Review called James Bond Books Undergo Edit to Remove, quote, offensive language. USA Today, the thought police come from uh, Ronald Dahl and Ian Fleming. So I know Professor Sean wants to, uh, wants to, uh, uh, butt in on that. And similar articles from CNN, from news.com slash a or dot AU as well. Goosebumps author R.L. Stein says publisher made woke edits behind his back. And so I'm not going to read podcast Sean's entire hmm. email here, but here's what he said. 
There's been a rise in frequency around censoring topics and subjects due to the sensitivities of what most would perceive to be a minority of individuals. So this might be a good discussion to bring up during the More About Less segment. And then he goes on to say a few quotes in this regard from Ray Bradbury. I'll just give you the one here. There is more than one way to burn a book, and the world is full of people running about with lit, with lit matches. Woo. Mm. Yes. That's powerful, yeah. So talk to me about this. I, yeah. I have some concerns because I understand censorship. We often censor things. There are two reasons we tend to censor things. One is we're afraid of the mob outrage. We don't want to be canceled by the mob on Twitter or Instagram or TikTok or wherever, right? But the bigger reason that corporations censor things, and you see this with YouTube now, you have people that can't write the word sex, S-E-X. They write S-E-G-G-S, segs, because they're afraid of being throttled, censored, right? Well, why are we being censored? It's because of advertisers. This is why advertisers suck. Because, and I, by the way, I get it. If I'm running the advertising campaign, the commercial campaign for Tide, yeah, I don't want to be on a bunch of videos that talk about sexual assault. And so instead of not being on those videos, now I'm just on those videos and they're using coded language. It becomes confusing and it becomes a bunch of group speak. And and it's a frustrating thing because Mm. we are censoring ourselves. In fact, I would say we're we're the most censored time ever, but it has to do with our own self-censoring because we're beholden to the corporations. Yeah, it's interesting too, because for those who value censorship because of a conviction that there are some ideas that are dangerous or corrupting, there's more to dealing with such ideas than censoring them. It's possible to deal with ideas we don't agree with or that we don't like by criticizing them, allowing for their public expression and their public rebuttal. By the way, usually when you have the stronger position, a public fight is what you want, right? If, if, I'm, if I'm fighting Conor McGregor, I want that to be a private fight. Turn the cameras off. <laughs> Right. But but if I'm confident what I should do, embarrass him. <laughs> right. You know what I mean? I love that brother. I don't want to embarrass his career like that. You know what I mean? Turn those cameras off. <laughs> but, you know, if I'm confident I can win that fight, I want as many people to see it as possible. Right. Mm. Um, bad ideas deserve to be publicly refuted, you know, Um and, and so you can criticize those ideas. You can you can even do what we do when it comes to restaurants and movies. What do people do when they watch a movie that had a $100 million budget, a whole bunch of ads plastered around, and they go see the movie and it was a complete dud? They don't even adopt a moralist position on it. They just go on Twitter, they go on Instagram, and they say, oh, that movie was boring, it was crap, the acting garbage. was terrible. Yeah. And they're not even offended if you do go see it. They're just telling you that it was garbage. And people make decisions like that. Entire movies have bombed because the fans went and says, yeah, this just wasn't up to the standard. You know, Uh, they really missed the boat on this one. And that's something that we can do with ideas. We can criticize them. We can we can express our disinterest in them. The problem with censorship is who gets to decide? And I, I think the people who advocate for censorship 
often have no problem with that question because they're always imagining themselves being the one to be the decision makers, or they're always imagining people who think like them. And what you have to understand is that whenever you advocate for censorship, you are advocating for a principle that is more fundamental than the specific thing you want to center. And that fundamental principle can be something that is used by people who think differently than you. And so the question you got to ask yourself is, if I advocate for censorship, what happens when that power is given over to someone who has the opposite position of me? Am I still for censorship? Oh, my opinion has changed now? Do I don't like censorship if that guy's president? Oh, okay, well, you don't like censorship. You just hate that book. Why don't you criticize it? You know, why don't you make a video telling everybody how stupid it is? Try to exercise influence in a better way. So that's, you know, I, 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 I think that there could be more critical thinking when it comes to these types of discussions. But I will say this. I know that it's more in vogue to be paranoid about these sorts of things. And I know that it makes me look irresponsible to say that I'm not worried about everything social media tells me I should be worried about. But here's why I'm not paranoid about this. I don't agree with it. I don't agree with, you know, editors and publishers going back and making these changes without telling the authors about them because they're afraid. But entrepreneurship is a process of discovery. Yes. And the market is an ongoing discovery process. And just because you do something, it doesn't mean you're going to get away with it for long. Mm. And you do have some room to get it right and see the negative, I mean, to get it wrong, see the negative consequences and go, oh, we better pull that back before we lose our customers. And I personally think something that is significantly underestimated is there are a lot of people out there who are tired of being told what to think. There are a lot of people out there who say, hey, I don't like that book either. Hey, I don't like that opinion either. But you know what else I don't like? I don't like you positioning yourself as my parent telling me what I don't have the right to read for myself. No, thank you. I can think for myself. I can teach my children to think for themselves. And I can make my own decisions about what music I listen to and what books I read. And I don't need some elite group to be the ones to say, oh, TK, we're going to protect you from even having to use your brain analyzing that information. No, thanks. I don't need that kind of protection. You know, as C.S. Lewis said, when someone suggested that there are people who are worthy to be slaves, C.S. Lewis says, who among us is worthy to be the master? Oof. You know what? We rely on these corporations to distribute our works, to edit our works, or whatever it might be, right? And so it's no surprise that the corporations will end up censoring you at some point because they have a fiduciary responsibility to their shareholders and they know that in certain cases censoring you is better for their bottom line but i don't want to fault fine simply with corporations they're the easy scapegoat here sure it's up to us and i say us in two different respects one is us as creators if we're creating something and then we rely on a corporation to create that then ultimately i don't have autonomy over that. They also have a say in what they distribute. And so if I turned in a film to Netflix, our last two films, and they didn't like it, they're welcome to say, no, you need to edit this. Otherwise, we're not going to put it on our platform. And I'm not going to say, oh, you're simply censoring me. They, they might be censoring me, but it's my choice at that point to continue to work with them, right? Yeah. And thankfully, Netflix never came to us and censored a single thing from us. 
But now that we are self-censoring, we're we're basically censoring in advance. We're anticipating what the corporations want. And then we're bending a knee to the corporations in advance. And the rules have become so ambiguous too. Like we don't even know what to censor. I can't curse in the first five minutes of the podcast because then I'll be demonetized or whatever. Well, the minimalists don't monetize our YouTube channel, so you can't censor us. Oh, but you're not going to get into the algorithm. Okay, you don't owe me anything, YouTube. If you don't put me into the algorithm, so what? Thanks for letting me use your platform and uh, not needing to monetize the platform, not to, needing mm. to run advertisements on on our videos. You don't owe me anything. And also, I don't owe you anything either. We simply have an exchange here. And if it, the exchange works, then it works. If it doesn't, that's okay too. I like to hear from Professor Sean here because he's a talented novelist and a also a an avid reader, probably the the most voracious reader that that I know. What uh what are your thoughts on this, Sean? I have an issue here um, with the value of truth. I am a big James Bond fan. Podcast Sean is as well. Jordan is as well. The three of us went to the Peterson Auto Museum several months ago and. Saw an exhibit of all the uh, all the screen used Bond cars. It was a lot of fun. Ian Fleming, who created the character of James Bond, who wrote the first, I think, sixteen Bond novels. I've read them all. Uh, was quite a bit racist and misogynist. I don't think any of us are pretending otherwise. Hmm. Um, now we can, if we want to, because oh. that has been removed from the books. Um, I would I would rather square my enjoyment of the of the character of the films that have come after it of the progress those films have made with the uh I hate to use the word problematic but with the problematic aspects of the creator I would rather wrestle with that myself um a quote I heard this morning I think um a beautiful sorry, an ugly truth is better than a beautiful lie. Hmm. We are, um, this might be a bad choice of word, but we're kind of whitewashing the past here. Um, and I, I, yeah, I take issue with that. And that's not, that's obviously not the intention here either. hmm. Right. It's what, I mean, I think the intentions here tend to be noble because, Hey, look, we don't want anyone to get offended but just take that to its terminus and you'll just be printing blank books. And then of course I'm going to be offended if I open up a a book and it's just blank. And so you can never unoffend everyone. You can never avoid upsetting everyone, but the intentions are good. Like, yeah, okay. I understand why you want to go back and adjust the text in these books because you feel as though you would be putting forward a more superior work that is more in line with the times but if the author, him or herself, did not design it that way, then why is it up to a publisher to do that? Now, I think the opposite of that, like Kanye West on his 2016 album, Life of Pablo, he continued to update the album himself after it was released. So he put it out and he would go change a song two weeks later, a month later, two months later. And Ye was doing that to his own creation, not because he was censoring himself, but he was experimenting with a living album in a way, right? Because usually we have this fixed thing. And as soon as you've created the album, it's now on a disc and that's it and it's done. But with the world of streaming, you could update it in a way. 
this is different from that. This is not involving the artist in mm. the art and it's changing the art often against the wishes of the artist. And in many cases, the artist is dead and we're changing their work after the fact. Yeah. You know, I'm going to play angel's advocate with the idea that uh, the intentions are noble. Uh, I, I think it's quite possible that that's true for some people. Right. Uh, but I also think that power games are real. And there are some people who really enjoy occupying a position where they get to decide what you can do. And there are some people who love that. That's, that's what they live for, being the ones who get to be in charge and telling what other people that uh, what they can listen to, what they can entertain themselves with. There are people that are extremely uncomfortable with you going home and watching a movie that they don't want you to watch. There are people on this earth who simply don't know what to do with themselves when things like that happen. And some people are so busy bodied mm. and so obsessed with control that they will do whatever they can to achieve that power. In addition to that, I think another ignoble intention is some people do it simply because they are slaves to fear. It's not that they want to protect anyone from being truly harmed. It's they want to protect themselves from ever being thought of as a bad person, or they want to protect themselves from ever losing a dollar. They don't want to stand by anything. They don't want to believe anything. They don't want to associate themselves with anyone that has a real opinion because that person is a real human being, right? Because having a personality is intrinsically offensive because someone's not going to like your personality. And so... I think out of respect for the diversity of these views, I would I wouldn't put I wouldn't put any of the people in the box. I would say certainly there are some good people who have bought into arguments for censorship and their intentions are good, but it is also true that there are people who are behind these agendas who in my opinion simply can't be trusted because they are slaves to fear who wish to make other people slaves to their need to be in control. Yeah, I think that even some, even though someone's intentions are good, you don't want to entrust. You don't want to trust someone, even if they just have good intentions, because what is the outcome of that good intention? And quite often, what happens is there's a, a very bad outcome yeah. that we reach from this yellow brick road of good intentions. Yeah. Speaking of something that has nothing to do with minimalism, the song you hear playing in the background right now is our added value segment this week. I found this guy on Instagram, TK. His name is Nick D. And since Nicodemus isn't here today, people often call Ryan Nick all the time. People write into the show. Hey, uh, Josh, TK, and Nick. Um, <laughs> but Nick D. has he had this song on Instagram called, uh, I think it was called uh, uh, Dead Battery. And it was such a great song. He was doing like this this performance on Instagram of it, like in this alleyway. And I just really enjoyed it. And I dove into his catalog and my wife and I were driving around and listening to some of his songs. They were like upbeat, hip hop, pop, R&B-esque. And this song that you're listening to right now is called Fine Apple. And it is a beautiful song. It's so fun. You just drive around and I'm singing it to my wife and... It probably has nothing to do with minimalism, but I certainly enjoyed it. This is Nick D, Fine Apple. All right, that's our Maximal episode for today. On behalf of Ryan Nicodemus, TK Coleman, Malabama Podcast, Sean, Jordan No More, Professor Sean, Social Jazz, Danny Unknown, Post-Production Peter, and the rest of our team, I'm Joshua Fields Milburn. If you leave here today with just one message, let it be this. Love people and use things because the opposite never works. Thanks for listening, y'all. 
Peace. I like my water with lemon and lime That's cause they're better combined Kinda like us, you and I If you were fruit, you'd be fine If you were words, you'd be defined I like the trauma and the time travel So you could walk by me again Yeah, I think you skate, but I need a I see your face whenever I blink You a Pisces, kinda sweet like the iced tea Southern kind, never undermine Never put your dreams under mine We a team, anything, heard me sing like a bunch of times Just when the caterpillar thought the world was over Man, it turned into a butterfly I like my water with lemon and lime That's cause they're better combined Kinda like us, you and I I like my water with lemon and lime That's cause they're better combined Kinda like us, you and I If you were fruit, you'd be fine If you were words, you'd be the fine I like the trauma and the time travel So you could walk by me again If you were fruit, you'd be fine If you were words, you'd be the fine Trauma and the time travel So you could walk by me again yeah. uh, And you watch Game of Thrones on your phone For like the hundredth time I don't know what you want But baby, give me a try No reason for you to be alone Don't make it difficult Just tell me what you want yeah. Be right back when I get there for you Only take a minute, baby, I support you If you were words, you'd be the fine print yeah. I like the trauma and the time travel So you could walk by me again If you were fruit, you'd be a fine apple If you were words, you'd be the fine print I like the trauma and the time travel So you could walk by me again